that shitty song, man. You're listening to This Is Hardcore Podcast. We got a great episode for you, and the way to start this off is absolutely perfect with one-on-ones learning. Mike Diggums, they got a new project coming out. Len Carmichael, who you've seen his credits on the Hey 5-6, This Is Hardcore videos, out of Landmine Studios, tracked this one during COVID. Hopefully in 2021, the whole world will know that one-on-one might be one of the most dangerous motherfucking projects in a long time. They have a YouTube video with some lyrics. I was very happy and honored to do some guest vocals on this track, and I really hope that these guys get to see the light of day on stage and take over the fucking world. This has really just been a shitty week for people passing away. And I know with COVID, it is certainly something that has touched more people than I could think. But directly related to the hardcore scene, we have to talk about Steven Potashio, 24-year-old from Philadelphia area, who lit up the floor, was excited for shows, be it in the basement or even in the biggest clubs. To think about someone going to 24 is just sad. And yet I can think of so many people that we grew up with that never even made it to the 21st birthday. Steve was an awesome person with a great presence of mind and a great laugh. If you were at Keystone Jam and Club Reverb, you would have seen him Muay Thai kicking everybody in the pit while wearing a giant Santa Claus suit. If you are feeling the pain of loss, reach out, talk to people, don't be sequestered. This is a great time to... Remember that whenever you're feeling down, that peer support is really important. And there's a ton of people out there that got you and will listen to you and will help you get through the hardest times. This one hit out of the blue and really struck hard as well. Rich McLaughlin from Killing Time at Breakdown. Rich, all I can say is that every time you ever played for me, you always had a smile, a joke, and you made sure to not just be a guy who was going to get on and off stage and go do his thing. Even when we got to hang out last year at FYA, it was just always impressive to see you just being so affable and willing to have a conversation longer than just a quick chit-chat to be polite. For those of you who are fans of New York hardcore in general, it's easy to think that there wouldn't even be a sound like Madball without Killing Time or Backtrack for all the younger guys. And the one thing that comes out of it is it shows the connection between just how one person's impact in writing a demo or a record could just be passed down through generations. My heart goes out to his family and to the entire New York hardcore family. If there's a silver lining in it, it should remind all you younger guys and girls out there that while these bands are playing, to make sure to go check them out. It's kind of fucked up to think about it, but... As our hardcore heroes are gaining in age, we have less and less opportunities to see them. So while they're still on stage, take the time to appreciate them for what it is and give them a shot if it's something that you've never checked out. Thankfully, I got to see Rich one more time at the amazing FYA festival that Bob put on, and I had a great conversation with him hanging out in the hallways. That being said, I wish to God we had more with him. It needs to be said that so many people from hardcore in general have such a positive view of this man and that he touched so many throughout his career and was an absolute impact not only musically with the way that he played and the sound that he put out, but just in the people that he interacted with. Um, He's going to be missed. With this being the last episode of 2020, I just wanted to take the time to say thank you to everybody who has supported me. One of the things that has gotten me through the last five months 
has been working on this podcast. Although our first episode didn't come out till September, it was mid-July where I bought the equipment and began my journey becoming a podcaster and half-assed sound editor. The more I do this podcast, the more I appreciate all the people that have done podcasts before me and all the new people that are starting off. This comes out on Christmas, but please check out Jamie Ork and his show. I will be a guest on it this upcoming Monday. You can find his podcast links on Instagram at xjamiex, J-A-M-I-E. I've been a podcast guest before, but I think this time we really went all out. And being that it was about three hours long, you'll probably only listen to 25 minutes of it. But thanks to Jamie. Big shout out once again to the Broadsheet Breakdown Gang, Vinny Paz, OG, and of course Pablo. They have a new episode out. Make sure you check that out. My boys in Post America Podcast have been going through some times because they can't all link up and some of them have caught COVID. But Richie has kept everybody moving forward with his the quarantine sessions. And he has done an absolutely sick job with these one-on-ones for the most part. Please check them out. Post America Podcast has had me as a guest about four times now, maybe even five. One of my favorite podcasts just to listen to and absolutely my favorite cast to be on. If you want to hear the clashing of two worlds, please check out the Danny Diablo podcast. He had a Ram champion who will be our next week's guest on. And it's a podcast that I absolutely refer to everybody because of just the ability to hear Danny Diablo, a.k.a. Isaac, talking to a Ram while Jay Reason's laughing in the background. Big shout out to those guys. Also, shout out to Hoya Rock and his Smoking Word podcast. He's now on Soundtown Media. And he keeps pumping them out. Really a fantastic podcast that has been going on quite a long time. I know I just name dropped the Ram. I should shout out his podcast, One Step Beyond. He is a leadership CEO who manages to coach people in business, but has a great podcast that also includes many guests from the music world. My favorite being Mike Gitter and Carlos from No Echo. Check that out on One Step Beyond Podcast. A future podcast guest of ours, Zach Nelson, has an amazing podcast called 185 South. I checked out a few episodes because of Bob Wilson recommending. Knowing Zach Nelson from the days of In Control and us being punishment, getting to play with him in Sacramento, I was excited to check things out. What's incredible to me is that he's taken a role of documenting the West Coast hardcore scene. He even has a couple buddies like Daniel from Over My Dead Body jump in on episodes and give him a hand. I did listen to episode 100, and it's awesome to see multiple podcasts that cover hardcore reaching over 100 episodes. Typically, when I enjoy a podcast, I go all the way back to the beginning and listen, but was scrolling through and realized he did a a special interview about himself, and it was great to hear about my old friend. He'll be coming up in a month or so, and I'm really excited to talk to him about the the back-in-the-day stuff and his podcast. Uh, You can find that also on Spotify and all the stuff. He may have a Patreon as well. If you can, support him. Hoya Rock from Madball has been running with the Smoking Word podcast for quite some time. He recently signed with Sound Talent Media. I'm excited to hear Richie and Jotham from Post America on his podcast. You can find him on Instagram, Hoya Rock, but check out his podcast as well. For me, I am going to be working on a couple different podcast-related projects that go beyond just this. 
nothing that I can air out right now. I don't want to spill the beans or break details as they're still forming. But in this 2020 turning into 2021 space, I won't be slowing down at all with podcasting. All right, here's your Christmas present in the form of three-hour conversation with Scott Vogel. Although in all of our episodes, I don't feel like I interview people as much as I have a great conversation where we delve into the facts, details, and history of our guests. With this one, there's just too many details, too many facts, too much history just to try to trap them into one conversation. Granted, there was no just boring chit-chat going on. This was a trade of ideas. We touched on quite a few things that happened in the present and in the past and really got a better idea of how Scott thinks and what he's been thinking about and how he feels on the matter. No matter how you skin the cat, Scott Vogel has been an inspiration and influence in hardcore for such a long time that he has so much documented towards what he did, how he did it, and when he did it that I felt this to be the more appropriate method to have a great conversation. So here we go. A fantastic conversation between two friends for Christmas or the holidays or whatever you want to call it. Take care. We're talking to Scott Vogel today to say that he is the paragon of what a hardcore frontman and what a hardcore person should be is an understatement from his beginnings in just being a hardcore kid at shows in the eighties in Buffalo to being a stalwart on the road whether it was Despair, whether it was Buried Alive, and Terror, the ultimate road band, Scott Vogel has transcended decades and yet is eternally youthful, not only in presence, but in spirit of how much he truly loves and appreciates hardcore. And he is the standard bearer for what so many people want to be as far as when they get on stage and grab a mic. Scott, thank you for being on the show. Uh, thanks for having me, and thank you for those nice uh starting starting words or setting the uh the the pace words and uh yeah i'm back in buffalo i moved back here like uh two weeks ago so it's been pretty hectic like uh moving across the country in a pandemic is kind of crazy and then just figuring everything out has been uh you know time consuming so i feel like i've been a little bit more stressed than i want to be but it's starting to level out and uh i think everything's going to be really good the last time i did any kind of interview with you i was trying to put out a zine and okay. you don't need to remember it but what was interesting was you were moving from buffalo to arizona and you probably already got to arizona before we did the zine <laughs> that's and about 19 years ago then yeah so 19 years ago i tried to do something like this and uh it's even just fucked up that all we got to do is look into a computer and we can do <laughs> this now uh, uh, this kind of beautiful, huh? This reality of it is awesome. And I actually thinking about it, like so much more has come into play when you were kind of like, yeah, man, buried lives over. I'm just moving out to the West coast. You know, I might have some things going on out there. We'll see. And then it's an entire separate chapter before we get into that. It, because of how much I know, how much you love hardcore. I need to know, <laughs> obviously you grew up in Buffalo. What was the music like in your house? And what was the first record that you think was like the foundation of this? Not the, not the first hardcore record, but the record that probably has the most um, of the skipping stone to being in hardcore, like the step before hardcore. 
So uh, I grew up with my mom and my two sisters, and uh, it was a good. My mom was a good mom, and but very poor. We were pretty poor, and I can remember. Um, you know, we moved a lot too because she would like. You know, she had some jobs like a dental assistant and uh, just crappy jobs like that. And eventually, she got a job at the post office. And we moved and I can kind of remember the setup of her record player at that place and the records that I can remember going through her records and listening to were things like the kinks, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, stuff like that. So that that's all a, a pretty cool starting point. She was really into Willie Nelson too. And I, I can, for some remount, for some reason, remember she had the uh, soundtrack, to the movie, uh, fuck, what's the John Travolta movie? Oh, Saturday Night Live, Fever, Saturday Night no, no. Fever. Grease, Grease. Oh, shit, the Grease soundtrack. So she had a gatefold, and I can remember, I don't want to admit that I listened to it a lot, but her and my sisters used to listen to that a lot. But um, that's the first memories I have of music, stuff like that. But I clearly remember a very, two, two big ones. Uh, buying at a garage sale, Kiss Alive 2, the album. That's the first record I ever bought myself. And I would assume it was just on looking at Kiss and uh, their whole image and everything visually about them. I, I bought the record. And then after that, um, my mom had a pretty cool boyfriend named Dave at one time. And he was like, a, you know, he would take me to hockey games Sabres games and he would let me like sip his beer and uh I remember at one point and he he played softball and I was like the bat boy for their softball team and it was pretty cool and um at one point he gave me Black Sabbath self-titled and Black Sabbath paranoid on vinyl and I don't remember exactly what he said to me but maybe he said like I can tell you're a little crazy, so these will make you crazier. Or I don't know what he did or why he gave them to me, but that was obviously like uh, I'm going to say I was at like in fourth grade, and I got these two records on vinyl, and that was probably a, a big game changer for me to have those and own those. And and like if you know the cover album or the cover art of the first Black Sabbath record, it's very haunting and eerie and evil so uh that probably led me down this path those two those two uh events you are not the first guest nor the last that has cited those two specific records really? and not only that but the artwork specifically uh mm -hmm. chris beer chris wren richie crutch there seems to be a legacy of um i would say inspiration and just excitement that just specifically comes from those records. For me, you and I had a very similar background. Um, in my mother's apartment, she would stack her records on the floor next to her player. And she had anything from the Saturday Night Fever record. She also had the Parliament Funkadelics. But then she also had Ozzy Osbourne. She had a ton of early 80s uh, rock and heavy metal records. And the artwork really drew me to just as a kid, just like I remember playing on the floor 
and there was kind of being like adjacent eye level with my toys and just always right. stuck with me. It's like, does that expect, and it, it, what you said is it was the artwork that really struck out, you know, as a kid, I mean, to, to see it was kind of like not off putting, but a weird juxtaposition when you're like playing with Legos and right there and then. Right. Which is also, I mean, totally off topic, but important. It's kind of disheartening now when, I mean, of course there's people that collect records, but it's kind of disheartening now that so many people, and I'm not even talking hardcore when they consume, I guess if that's the right word, music, it's all about just what's going into their ears. And it's uh, so much is lost when you don't have the art and the layout and everything that goes with that. So not to get too off topic, but that's always bummed me out when like, you know, of course, when you like band X puts out a new record, you check it out on your phone right away. But for me, it's still not a full package until you get the physical thing in your hand and can see everything they present to you. That's, that's like the full experience. The, the full experience is something that is lost in the modern age. And I don't, I don't necessarily think it would knock us off track to really say that the way a presentation has always been in the most full form, especially in that young discovery period, it was getting the record. It was, you know, whether it was in my, in your metal phase or when you're beginning phases, when you acquire it, you're excited. Like, you know, uh, for us, we drove to shows. We might buy a, we might buy a record. You didn't have the money to buy multiple records. We would travel on the L train to South street in Philadelphia. And you bought that CD or you bought that tape. You had to wait. You had to wait. You had the whole, it was like almost burning in your fucking hand. And when you got home with it, you read those liner notes. You looked at the pictures and the whole presentation, like it it astounded you. For me, the first two CDs I got came from a family friend who came up when my mother graduated and I got carcass heartwork and a Pantera far beyond driven. The first thing I had on CD, I had like a shit ton of tapes at that time. I had LPs, but the first CD I got was a boom box that came with this like big presence. First time my grandmom came to Philadelphia since we were like babies. And I remember looking at the carcass heartwork record and just being astounded by the art and that Geiger sculpture. And then I didn't, I didn't even know what it was going to sound like. I was familiar with carcass, but just blown away. And I, and I totally agree. It almost makes some of the music, not, not like, you know, disposable, but it's temporary, like an Instagram story. Like it comes out, you listen to it for a bit. You don't have the same interaction because it's in a digital format. And then you lose the the level of interaction. Like I have biohazard CDs that I also had on tape. And I have records of yours that I had on MP3 that you guys would say, hey, check this out. But was so psyched to have it in pure form. You know, like there's a, you have to have it with you. And I know this will sound funny, but you know, when you're in tour and you're up, back before Spotify and the big shit. You had a CD or two in the car. Schlump gave us uh, Agnostic Front, The Warriors, before it came out. We listened to that so much, and I read that liner notes because it was out in Europe first. I love that record forever because I think I listened to it four times a day for 30 days straight. Right. And it probably subconsciously takes you back to a good time on tour. Yeah, and exactly what I was going to back into it, like, you don't have, we didn't grow into music the way now 
where you just have this unlimited library. So the few that you have, they're, they're stuck with you, good or bad. Right. And to, if you actually pay for something and you own it, it's, it's, it's physically part of you as to where, you know, a new record comes out, you check it on Spotify and it just gets lost in the internet matrix and you may never go back to it again. Even if you loved it, like I'll check out things that I think are amazing, but it goes in one ear and right out the other. And then, you know, it's just like, I'll never listen to it again, even though it, in reality, if I gave it more attention, it could be a record that I completely love. It's kind I mean, it's, it's like a blessing and a curse. Obviously there's so much stuff out there that you can have, in an instant but with that that uh power so much stuff it just isn't it's just overwhelming and you can't you can't treat it all like uh you would if with physical records it's impossible no i, I agree 1000 percent. in fact if you're able to com- contrast or compare from the time of your first band and the state of hardcore then I would say that the records that came out were coming out on labels and you were immediately drawn and everybody was drawn to the records because it was like, holy shit, something's news out. And now today I feel like every Friday, Twitter and Instagram is going to pop up with a record that I didn't even realize a band had something new offering. And by the time I even engage with it, it's the following Friday and there's another, this is a new great record. And I feel like there's a conveyor belt constantly shoving new material at us. And I wonder how it feels for you. Not, not so much as an artist, but if you take it back to when you were first really engaged in hardcore and playing shows, how much it has sped up the whole thing and how much things have gotten lost because of the speed in which it moves. Well, the, the very, you know, I had obviously put out, lots of demos and, and taped lots of tapes myself and sold them at shows. But the very first time I had music of mine on vinyl was the, the Slugfest 7-inch, who Chris Logan, the singer of Chokehold, put out. So just, I, I met him. Uh, he, I want to say he came to some shows in Buffalo and saw Slugfest and then he invited us up to play in Hamilton where they're from. So we're crossing the border and going into Canada, but it's only like a 45 minute drive and they put on this great show. And and eventually um, he started a label called structure records. I think they first put out a tape comp this, the, the your order might be wrong, but uh, eventually put out the Slugfest seven inch and a bloodlet seven inch. And for him, like, you know, it took long and, and it was delayed and, uh, you know, um, it wasn't a perfect process, but, you know, back then really what was. But when he handed me that record, it was like uh, the coolest thing in the world. It's like my band has a seven inch out. And, and you know, at that time I would uh, get maximum rock and roll and look through it and anything, I don't want to say anything, but lots of things that looked like, you know, like a hardcore, like, you know, a lot of stuff in there was punk, but anything with like a a short haired guy jumping and maybe some sort of collegiate looking 
clothing, I would just mail order it. I would, uh, I think I would buy money orders from like, uh, 7-Eleven or like something, or I don't, maybe I'd even send cash. I definitely didn't have a check, a checkbook or anything like that. So I would just get maximum rock and roll and mail order anything and, you know, get all these really obscure bands. I don't want to say, you know, they were too obscure, but like home of the hits, the record store here, of course they would carry revelation and victory and, and stuff like that. But some of the smaller bands you just have to order. And I would just continuously order records. It would be like, you know, you'd send like three fifty. I think they cost, you just stick 350 in an envelope, send it to, you know, wherever in Pennsylvania or California. And six months later, you just get this new seven inch in the mail. And that was the coolest thing in the world to me. And I'd all, you know, then I had my own band that had a seven inch out and um, yeah, that was amazing. And uh, still just to think about, you know, cause I, I've obviously, you know, put a few records out myself lived with Patrick when Reaper was uh, a thousand percent going full steam and, and seeing all the things that go into a record, like there's the recording and then obviously the artwork and then getting the covers printed and, and then, you know, the records show up and the covers show up and then you have a thousand records that you have to put together and, and put them in the sleeves and then you have a stack of a thousand records and then you have to mail these things out, whether it's to one person that mail order it, just like I was describing I did, or you got to send a hundred to 200 to revelation. Cause they're going to distro it. It's really like a, an amazing process, all the things that go into it. And just thinking about all that recording and art and, post office and dealing with a printer and dealing with a pressing plant. Like honestly, like any hardcore kid that has been through all that and making zines and going on tour and like you learn so much and uh, you learn how to deal with adversity and dealing with delays and, and you get so much life experience from that. And we're not even talking about touring yet. Like that's a whole nother world. So uh, I just think as frustrating as things can be, you're, you're just learning so much and doing things yourself and starting a business yourself. It's, it's pretty amazing to see all that. What's interesting is what you said about a picture of someone jumping in the air and I'm <laughs> and I'm immediately tied to, an artwork in a quarter page or less ad for despair's thousand cries. And that's how I ordered your record. And I mail cash. And a couple weeks later, I wrote you a letter saying, I want to book your band. I saw that letter somewhere in one of my uh, things. And it, to me, there's a process that is exactly what you're alliterating to. There's a hands-on truly organic feel from the very beginning. Um, and I had already been booking shows and playing shows before I had the opportunity to work for too damn hype. And even when we were sending out literally hundreds of CDs, that was me and Jamie Davis at Mets basement, printing labels, putting CDs and just trying to get magazines and people to cover 
the new CD that would come out. There's so much hustle that involves from the very basic form, like you said, just putting something in a record, you know, like every single CD got certain things. Like there's so much physical work that you, you learn skills and you learn things. And a lot of what we talked about in several episodes is just that kind of work that hardcore then kind of relates back to, you know, maybe, maybe your band will not end up being Tever, but you have life skills and you can move forward. And I feel that some of what we just spoke on first, the digital aspect kind of removes that physical interaction and that respect for the work that goes in, you know, um, every, I don't think every record was ever bought. And I think that that's something that kind of young kids are starting to need to realize the Spotify and YouTube algorithm allows a big spotlight on bands that kind of got passed by quick. Like not every record was worshiped in whether it was 88 or 94 and young kids picked this up and like, this is the greatest record. I'm like, actually this band like played 10 shows. They're probably not that great, you know, but the digital platform puts it all on the same stage for these young kids. So they're able to dissect it in the same way where as you in Slugfest, you were probably both enamored by the bands that kind of put you on the stage but excited to play with the bands of then, but you would, you would never think about some band that, you know, the same way now thinking about it, like it's a hundred bands that you play with that kids would probably listen to and go, this is the craziest thing. Why weren't they big? And you're like, because they played three shows in Canada and that's it. And they broke right. up and did yeah. other things. Right. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, yeah. So, you know, sometimes I'll get bummed out by how quote, quote unquote, easy it is now. I mean, it's easier to record. It's easier to get your stuff out. It's easier to tour. It's it's easier. It's easier. You can say it's easier, but it's also maybe easier to get lost in the shuffle because like you were saying, but like be back in back in back in the day, you know, you would know that the new integrity record is coming out and you're waiting and waiting and you're, you're like the, the record store here, home of the hits, you'd call it. Cause for me, it's like a 20 minute drive from the suburbs to go there. So I'm calling, do you have the new integrity record? Do you have the new integrity? So you're just waiting now, like you're saying, there's so many bands, there's so much touring, there's so many labels, there's so much releases that yeah, it's easier to put out something it's easier, but it's also so much harder to get ahead or, or, or be, be noticed, I guess. And I guess that comes down to be doing something original, doing something that can't be denied working that much harder because there's so many other bands right there alongside of you. Uh, but at the same time, I, I do think it, you know, the simplicity back then or the uh, the um, uniqueness was also an advantage. So when people say now it's so much easier to do things, I do think that also has its disadvantages to bands. No, I, I actually express this often on this podcast and elsewhere that making things simple devalues the work that you still need to put in. And on top of it, just that example you'd shown you're a band from Buffalo who has a 
seven inch coming out from someone who's from like Burlington or something like that in Ontario, who's also putting a record out from some band and like where where's 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 like Bloodlet from like Tampa or Gainesville or something? Uh, I just know Florida, but I'm not sure. Yeah, like so you have you have a amazing person, Chris, who's one of like just the most lovable dudes who somehow knows both bands close to him and far away because it shows just how not only um, still connected hardcore was back then, but how limited the resources were to get a band like Bloodlet where they would have to like have somebody from Ontario put a record out because there wasn't that small thing happening in their area. And it was the uniqueness of Bloodlet that kind of let them rise up because they would tour as well, but I think it, especially bands that are far away in those weird places like Texas, which is like a hundred miles from everything but Texas and Florida, which is like a hundred miles from something good. It takes sounding great to get beyond their area. And then because they have so many local scenes, you'll see Florida bands. I know you know this. You'll see Florida and Texas bands that are loved in their home state, but unknown everywhere else just because of the distance. And it's hard for, then and now to both be a band that can win a lot of people over from everywhere, but also the internet today is it's, it's a double-edged sword. The popularity allows some bands to move forward, but the, we said the conveyor belt, the speed of which it moves fast, it's hard to stay on the top, you know? And I think that it does go back to what you said, the originality, the effort you put into the package, and just not being a carbon copy of something else is what's going to give you some kind of longevity. And also, I think the energy a, pe- a person puts into something that doesn't go without. I mean, how many times have you seen it? And I always joke about it, but like, there is always a stepping stone kind of band where like they do one band, but it's only so they can get the next band, and that's going to be something completely out of the world of hardcore. And I've seen it a million times. Like, oh, this is my little hardcore band, but really, I was trying to do something giant. And you're like. So what were you in hardcore for? Was it just bored? Did someone just ask you to play in their band? Like, yeah, I think that's one of the the blessings of terror. Um, um, this is something I think I don't think about all the time, but you know, once in a while, I think, uh, you know, terror. Not, I don't think we sound exactly the same on every release. But if you look at the, if you look at me, I dress the same. I'm pretty much into the same stuff. I'm just older now. And our our music has always been fast, aggressive, in your face. And we've stuck around for like 20 fucking years now, which is crazy. So I think that's one of the things that I really, I uh, respect about the terror and the other members of the band that we never like got these, you know, at our, at our biggest, we didn't say, oh, we got to introduce this new element or we got to really do this or go that. We were kind of, you know, we, we've always been open to touring with bands outside of the, you know, the hardcore bubble or box. And we've always, you know, been able to to have our, you know, a, a finger in a little different area. But we've always kind of stayed the path and been happy with hardcore and loved hardcore and uh, appreciated and always wanted to take younger bands that we thought were important and impactful to us and, and kind of just stayed on that path. And I think like what you're saying, there's these amazing bands that come and you're, you're so into them. And, and before a year or two, 
these people are, I don't want to say they're shitting on hardcore, but maybe they've moved on to something else. Something else moves them and they, they want to go in that direction. And that's totally the right. But like you said, sometimes you're just like, damn, I was so into what you're doing. And now you yourself, you don't even act like that was important or meaningful. So what did it really mean in the first place? I, I actually, it's, it's one of the hardest things for me to deal with because I'm such a cancer emo crybaby about stuff. But like <laughs> I, came, I came into hardcore and immediately there was biohazards and there was life of agonies. And, you know, obviously, as you get to know the people in the the bands, you're like, all right, these are like down dudes. They had the musical opportunity to expand beyond hardcore. And uh, Biohazard is a little bit different than Life Agony, but there's moments just from trying to book them where I'm like, there's so many hardcore kids that just want to just want to have their moment loving you. And instead, they're like, we're on to the next thing. So that's always I think that I, I think that I mean. I think that young bands now are cultured away from what you said, where you're like, no, we're going to stay our band and you're going to accept us. And I watched you guys go from your basic hardcore tour. And a month later you were doing sounds of the underground the first year and you're playing with behemoth. And then you're playing a one-off in Boston and overnight drive to Philadelphia for the versus hardcore to maintain who you are, which is something you guys have done. Something Madball has done. And keep your name like the and I, I I hate the B word the brand but like to keep terror on brand and keep it real to what you guys value your band as has won over the twenty years where another band was let's add keyboards to this or let's add some clean vocals to this and then they lose a fan base and then they come back I feel like a good solid formula works and you've proven that and also I think the dogged determination. And just understanding that, like you said, with your different records, the terror can't release the same record every time, but you've added innovation while not straying off the path. And that's a very hard thing to do because at some point, a lot of bands get tired of it or they go, you know what? I, I, I had a friend who's in a very well-known band that's not from hardcore who said, well, one, one month we just didn't make as much money as previous months. And we said, you know what? Let's close it up because, you know, this could fall apart where it's like, there's going to be ups and downs. And I, I mean, I watched your band. I, you mail me CDs, CD demos to sell when Terror started. I've watched yeah. you guys play some great giant venues. And I've watched you kill in a basement in West Philadelphia as your first Philadelphia show. It's your drive and the way that you have and Nick have helped drive Terror through all these different phases that really endears people to still love your band after 20 something years. I, I, I know still to this day, like, um, you know, we'll, uh, be in Europe and, and one show we're playing a huge festival, like way bigger than my wildest dreams with literally we're playing to 20,000 people, which is insane. And let's say that's the Sunday. And we, we did something similar to that Friday, Saturday, Sunday. We played these huge festivals with Iron Maiden. And I'm not saying we play right before Iron Maiden or even see the people in Iron Maiden or play on the same stage as Iron Maiden, but these huge festivals. And the next day, we have no problem setting up in some 
club that has no PA that's a hundred cap room and having your, you know, typical hardcore show on a Monday night. And we're, we're in a hundred cap room and only 60 people show up. We have no problem making that transition where I think some bands will be like, we just played for 20,000 people. What is this shit? We can't play through this shitty equipment. How dare our booking agent put us in this place? Uh, this is fucking like w- never. And I, I might have more fun at the 60 person show than I did with the barricade and the, the thousands and thousands of people show. So that's something, another thing that I always, you know, there, there's time, there's things that piss me off about terror. There's things that piss me off about hardcore. There's things that piss me off about touring and all of that. Like there, there's, you catch me on the wrong day. I'll say, I fucking hate all this shit, but there, there's things about terror that I think are amazing. And it's not just me. It's the, the, the four other people in the band that, that allow us to keep going. And I think keeping your head screwed on straight and not getting too gassed up on yourself when you have a great set and everyone tells you how much your fucking lyrics mean to them or when you're playing to fucking no one and, and you feel like defeated, you can't let that stuff get you down. Cause like you're saying, there's highs and lows and there's records you put out that connect with people. And then the next record, maybe not so much. And there's tours you're on where, you're supporting a band and every show is sold out. So you kind of get in your head that you're fucking something special. And then you go out and headline and you're reminded you're not as special as you thought you were. And it's just like, if you let these things dictate your mood, you're going to lose your mind. And and then you just got to kind of keep a level head and, and be thankful that, I mean, for me, Every band I was in before Terror broke up as soon as we got a little bit of momentum. And I think that all comes down to Scott being crazy, Scott being a control freak, Scott freaking out if something doesn't go right. And and those things, I think, were a lot of what destroyed the bands I was in. So to be in Terror and put out, I don't know, fucking eight albums and tons of seven inches and toward the world over and over if i don't keep that in check and think about how lucky i am and how grateful i should be then uh you know it could all be gone in a second so um yeah i'm really lucky well i think you're also a person who realizes now from experience the do's and don'ts what you spoke on and i'll kind of talk more like to people listening there was a time in the early 2000s specifically where quite a few hardcore bands got that leg up to do a support tour and they would come back and play with punishment and shadow realm and stuff. But they'd be like, we just played for a thousand people. And it's like, yeah, you were the first band. Like you're not like <laughs> not that for you, bro. Like, and they would have such a shitty aspect to playing to us. You know, I was in punishment. Shadow realm was playing with us. We played these awesome weekend shows, to what we thought were fantastic shows and these bands who were doing these support tours were like, this is so much beneath us now that we've you know, like there's a, <laughs> and we never understood it. Cause it's like, bro, you're, you're opening for someone. That's not your show. Be happy that you have the opportunity to expose yourself to new people, you know, but it's not your world. And then I actually had the same experience with shadow realm in Europe. When I started singing for them, we played a festival. It was on a Saturday 
And they kind of said, hey, do you guys want to play a secret show just for a couple friends on Sunday? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, you're up. I don't think I'll ever come back. Fuck it. Let's do it. That 20,000 person hockey rink. Yeah, they might have liked Shadowrun, but I don't know. I was a little blip on the stage with a giant barricade in front of me. But when I went to that show where we had to load in some borrowed gear and we played and kids are spitting all over me and taking the mic, that I felt. <laughs> that I felt in a real way. Right. And I, I didn't go home and go back to pouring concrete that week going, you should have seen me. I played in front of 20,000 people. <laughs> Instead, what I was like, yo, man, Germany's fucking crazy. That was sick. <laughs> you know, like it's right. the it's the duality of both opportunities and not letting yourself get full of your head. I know that you're critical and it's actually cool to see you in hindsight say, you know, take some ownership of like things that you may have wish you'd done differently. But I also think one of your strongest traits is that you had so many iterations of different bands in different formats that it's allowed you by the time you got to a point in terror where you're like, okay, I I see what's going good. I see what's going bad and I got to go forward. So I, I know it's good to take ownership and say, Hey, I might have made these things bad, but I also think without those things going bad, you never would have been where you're at right now. Yeah, I, I definitely, when I moved to Arizona, before I, after Buried Alive, I was moving to California, but I stayed with my friend in Arizona for a few months. So I lived in Arizona for, I don't know, less than six months, I think. And I was in the mindset, I'm not doing a band anymore. I was so def. def- defeated by you know slugfest ended because the drummer quit to be in snapcase that really angered me now 30 years later i totally can see his side of it like he had a great opportunity me and my brother in slugfest were like smoking weed every second and and he was just focused and got a great opportunity despair same thing happened i know i was you know just uh, we got asked to do a seven inch on victory, which at the time was probably the, the best possible scenario for us. And two people quit the band after tour, probably because I was just a miserable, just so focused and like a band Nazi. And it's got to be this way and it's got to be my way and it's got to be like this. And to bear it alive, it was kind of the same thing, like band members quitting and, you know, like touring a little bit more, but the same, I was just so like, so driven to the point of it turned me into an asshole. I just wanted the band to do so much and to be, you know, I'll use the word successful, but that, you know, just in a, in a hardcore way, like just to be able to go to tour and, and have people sing along and respect us and, and to be able to play with cool bands, that that's my definition of successful at the time. And it just, my drive was so great that it made me this asshole. And so I went to Arizona and I thought I was never going to play in a band again. And then I got the call of, of what would be terror. Um, and I was like, I can't, I can't pass this up it's like it's my fucking it's in my dna to, to be a front man of bands but out there I, I thought i would never do it again and i got this phone call out of the blue and it's crazy to think 20 years later that that terror's still a band and everything we've done and i think you're right i at a certain point um you know and and being in the band with todd 
for the, for the start of terror, you're putting two like pieces of dynamite together. And, um, you know, we never really butted heads on anything. I think we had too much mutual respect for each other. And, um, I think at that point I had to say to myself, like, uh, obviously it was, it was not so much slugfest or despair, but with buried alive, I could tell there was something special about the way those guys wrote songs and the way they played, but even more so with terror, because it was so stripped down and so basic, but at the same time, it was so, so much energy and so much power. I was like, if this is gonna, if you're gonna not ruin this one, you better, you better treat the other people with some respect and, and, and make this thing grow, not tear it apart. Well, I think there's, if we, if we use a contrast comparison situation, Slugfest was obviously not your first band, but your first like legit outing with your brother, you're pushing it forward, but the music was only going to be able to take you so far. You had that, you had that kind of like, all right, I know what I need to do with a band. Let me push this into Buried Alive. Buried Alive, the demo, the LP might have some of the most outstanding and not outstanding as a word you would use for a zine interview, but like, Literally, it stood out among so many fucking bands. There was a in 1997, 1998, I think was like a fucking blizzard of bands in so many different variety. And that demo, I remember getting it and being like, what the fuck is this? Because it was hard enough that the moshing asshole tough guy dudes would love it. But it still resonated with the growing kids who are starting to listen to more of the metallic stuff you know you know they weren't really one stuck one genre but like the trust kill beginnings the fucking victory types everyone loved the demo and the lp because of its unique sound but how long were you going to be able to keep that fire like that i think the beauty and the the beauty in that band was just boom i mean like look you did your first thing with all war then you're on tour at one point with kid dynamite i mean it's that was a special time for a special band but I think you would not have had the same longevity that you got from terror. And I remember, I remember, unless I'm mistaken, there was a point in the beginning of terror where there was talk about John LaCroix somehow being involved in the band, or am I mistaken that? No, I mean, as, as far as I know, he started terror. Well, he's, that's what, he, he so what me. Is, you think about this, you got LaCroix, he's established 10 yard fight. You got Todd, you got Nick jet, you're not going into I'm the man in the band. You're 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 I, I always say this about terror and now with the modern day it's I used to say it's the Justice League, but terror as a band is the Avengers of hardcore. Like you don't just you've never had a dude just show up in terror who hasn't been in other bands. Right. That's why it works, man. You know, like got, Doug like, Doug might have been Doug might have been the, the least accomplished dude to join terror ever. And even he was a fantastic player in the band, you know. Um, yeah. But everybody who joins Terror joins as like we would use like a union. They're journeymen. They already know the fucking ropes. They got their shit together, and that's what I think you needed as a balancing point. Is it's not like listen here, you puny fucking guitarist. I'm Scott Vogel. It's like no oh, motherfucker. I got my own band, you know. Like I think that right. what you're saying about that respect and balance came from Todd was already who Todd was. You were already who you were. So there was a mutual respect based on what the project was going to be. But also, hey, motherfucker, I know how to tour. 
hey motherfucker i already did i already wrote that record you know like right. and i think for Trevor to work now you know when martin joined later jordan chris link all these different aspects are all dudes who know the road like the back of their hand so you don't have to be there with marching orders and be like this has to be good because they already know it to make good and I think it's something that gets kind of get glossed over, you know, even David Wood, you know, there's always different people that were in the band that are all journeyman players. And I think that's something that's very unique to add to terror's career length creativity is that you got guys who, Hey man, I know what it's like to be on the road. I know what it's like to be. And I think that's a huge part of the lifeblood of your band. That's very interesting. I, I honestly, it's such a, uh, it's such a uh, clear point. Like, there's no question about it. What you're saying is true. But I've never sat back and thought about that. I mean, I, I do know, like, when Todd left Terror, we got three guns, which was, like, the as, soon, as soon as everybody's thinking, oh, shit, how are they going to do this without Todd? You bring in three guns. It, I, I don't want to say it erases that thought, but you're like, oh, shit, they got him? Of course they can do it. So um, I don't think we, I never really thought about what you're saying, but it's totally true. Um, we've never just got some young kid that no one knew who he was. Like when Dave, when David left and we got Link, of, you know, it just told, to us, it just all makes sense. But what you're saying is, is a very good point. That's kind of cool. When you think about everybody has their own shared experiences with different people that are in other bands in the periphery and the world of terror. And so if a spot opens up and uh, in our world, there's a couple big companies in Philly where the best cement masons work. And if you want to get up there, like when you hear somebody like, Oh shit, he works there now. That means he made it. <laughs> and the same thing is in hardcore, you know, like all these guys are, I mean, Donnie Brook was fantastic. Frank three guns wrote some of the greatest riffs in ringworm integrity. Now with hate breed, you know, like every one of these folks have had their own amazing thing. And, they had the opportunity to join the fucking Avengers and make that work. And that's exactly, <laughs> it's the truth. I mean, I love it, but it, it's, it's what helps those wheels stay on the road. You know, you can't get, you don't want to take some 22 year old kid. That's never really been on a tour and put him in the entire world. Cause he doesn't have the resume for it. Right. And, and like you're saying, when, when uh, link joined terror, it wasn't like we had to tell him how to tour or, how to write a song or what's going on in the studio. It's all second nature to him, which in turn makes it much easier for us and makes me not have to freak out on people and be like, why the fuck? Like, you know, like it was just such an easy, smooth transition. And when you get like a new person, like Link with, with terror, with, with the lineup with David and Jordan and Martina, Nick and me, we had, we were a band for, we were the same lineup for like 10 straight years. So of course you get kind of burnt out on each other and comfortable with each other. Like to, to bring this new younger kid in, that's just like, this is my first terror show. I'm going to go fucking crazy. And I look over and see him going crazy. It puts new energy in me. So as much as is band uh, lineup changes suck, it does also bring a new spark that you need for a band that's been, together and touring for so long to get like that new fresh blood or uh fresh energy is always super important one of the things that terror brings to the table as well is that you 
if we go back to the Iron Maiden situation, you never really thought of yourself in any kind of like, well, you know, one day we hope to be this kind of band. You always were who you are. And I watched as, you know, whether it was in the very beginnings to, you know, like eventually it'd be terror and backtrack, terror and trapped in race. You know, now between the life and death tours, you had so many of these younger bands at different facets. Terror has always been a part of so many amazing younger bands rise up that it's also allowed you to dip into that, you know, fountain of youth. You're not playing with tired old bands who are sitting back going, you know, remember back in the day? No, you're always a part and present. And you specifically are always present in celebrating and supporting so many great young bands, whether, I mean, look at Code Orange, Harmsway, Jesus Peace. I could rattle off names just from now. I can name 10 years ago, 20 years. You were always supporting shit back when Donnie Brook, when Martin was just in that band, Dead Before Dishonor. Like, there's always bands from these different eras that you have supported through terror that I think has allowed you to also remain cognizant and vigilant on being happy with the moment instead of pining for some other time. Yeah, it's not just me, too, because when you think about it, like Nick, Nick's recorded so many bands, Take Offense, Rotting Out, all these bands. So he's always got, you know, dead heat like he's recorded so many bands. So he's got all these newer, a lot of times California bands. But, you know, he's gotten to the point where people will travel just to record with him. So he's always been, you know, in the mix with these younger bands and, and having his ear to the to the to the street of what's going on right now and martin now especially with doing sound and fury he's like more than ever he knows bands more than me now like totally knowing what's up and coming and this band and that band but i remember um one time tara was playing a show in uh I want to say San Antonio with bitter end. And um, I think we were headlining and I think it was a, a package tour. So bitter end opened up. They probably shouldn't have opened up the show playing in their hometown, but you know how that shit goes. And I think bitter end played first and terror was on tour. And I remember at some point during bitter end set, every single member of terror was moshing for bitter end. And it made me so fucking happy that not only every member of terror was there because, you know, they could have stayed at the hotel. They could have went out to dinner. They could have taken a walk. They could have just said, I don't want to fucking be at the show until we played. But not only was every member of terror there, but they were going off to bitter end. And I, it will always stick with me. Uh, just another thing I really appreciate about the band and I just think like, it's not like we, we force ourselves to uh, stay in touch with the scene. It's just like, if I see a zine at a, at a show, I'm buying it because I just want to read it. I want to support the person that made that zine because I know what it's like to put months into a zine, get it made, pay for it out of your pocket and then put it on the merch table and no one gives a fuck. So 
I want to buy the zine to support the person, but I also want the zine to read about new bands and, and see what they're, they're into. And I don't think it's like this effort we make. I think it just comes natural to us. We just want to tour with young bands because their, their energy keeps us feeling young. And they're also what's important in the scene right now. And I, I don't want to be like a, the old band that plays the old people where people sit at the show and drink a beer and be like, remember the first time I saw terror though, that was cool. When I used to be a hardcore kid, like that's like my nightmare. Like I just, I still am a hardcore kid. I still love hardcore. And I still, you know, if the, it's on the same account, like if there's a show going on, there's like, and I'm in town, like not on tour. There's like a, a very good chance I'm going to it. Not, not because support the scene, but just that's where I feel at peace. That's where I feel happy. So, uh, you know, I might not be inside watching every minute of every band. I might be outside talking or uh, some stuff like that, but I still have that that thing in me that when there's a show going on, I feel like not like it's my duty to be there, but it's who I am. So I go to it. I mean, I remember when you lived on the East coast previously and you came down on black Friday to see Marauder and a leeway together, you know, yes. it's something that something with you being on the East coast again, I feel like I'm going to run into it shows that terror is not going to be playing again, which is something that I think younger folks they sometimes don't realize that if you're in this, it's it can be for life. This can be a lifetime mm-hmm. thing. You know, like um sometimes hardcore people like myself get done with bands and they go, Oh, time to wrap it up and put on the dockers and just be a dude. And then what happens is I do a thing like a podcast and someone will be like, Thank you for doing this. It's re- helped me reconnect because I have a family life and I forget as you were talking about the zine, I forget not only is the supporting young people super important, but because of the internet, there's thousands and thousands of people who have regular lives and they just like to touch and the taste and like, Oh my God, I can't believe, you know, it makes them happy still. And it's such an impactful thing. So I'm not surprised that you, Nick and everybody in the band has these interactions because you think you need to have a real life connection. Not a, hey, you know, this is good for my band. I hear young bands say that all the time. Oh, well, I just want to make sure, you know, I'm out there. It's not a first frontal lobe thing. It's like an, it's, it's natural reaction. Oh, there's a show? Let's go to it. Oh, this band? I want to check them out. And I think that adds to the longevity and the drive to keep doing a terror, you know, is that you have to love this. And you have to love this for the simple reasons, the non- money at the end of the day in my pocket reasons. And that's something that I could say a hundred percent is in terror's favor. You know, it's an interesting thing to see you drive forward through everything. And I mean, also you also, when you, you brought, you brought Reaper working with Patrick, I mean, had terror not taken maximum penalty as support, probably my favorite maximum penalty record wouldn't have come out, you know? And that's god, when we when we heard those demos, oh my god, it was like it was four of the songs that were on Life and Times, and we got the demo when we were just couldn't believe how good it was. 
God damn, they're so amazing. I booked them as support for Bane and Aaron, both Aaron's and Bob were like, dude, this is so fucking sick. <laughs> and they had demos for sale and people didn't know what to make them. All their guys came out and that winter, I wanted to just have you guys come out and then they were offering to do gear. And that's the kind of thing that, that's the kind of thing that you guys would do. Like, Oh, well, we love Maxwell. Let's do this. And it turned into bringing this band a second opportunity in this hardcore thing. And it's actually crazy. I still book them when they come through. People love that record. And I think that you guys have always had that touch. I mean, you know, uh, when I talked to, it's such a weird thing. When I talked to Jules about having you on the benefit show, he couldn't believe that you guys were into it. <laughs> you know, like transitioning from how much you love the younger bands, you and all the guys in your band have always had a giant support for some of the amazing classic bands. And because of the weight of terror, you've managed to play with some insane, like dream lineup shows. And I think that's fantastic to get rewarded, to be come a peer of so many of bands that you grew up listening to. Yeah. It's kind of crazy, you know, to, to think like, uh, I don't want to name drop too many people, but I could right now pick up my phone and text some of the, people in my you know like alone in the crowds if not my favorite top three favorite seven inches ever and you know like just just to be able to talk to those people and like uh yeah, it's it it's really crazy and um you know but on the other hand sometimes i think about when i like i don't do it very often i used to kind of in la but going to hip-hop shows it's kind of amazing when I go to a hip hop show and I just, there's no guest list for me. There's no guest list. There's no backstage. There's no knowing the artist. There's no, no one knows who I am. I just go and I see the show and I'm there for the, the, the music and the lyrics. And then I get in my car and go home. And that's such a beautiful thing too. It's like the, that, you know, obviously it's amazing that I can talk to Jules from side by side and, and tell him how I used to listen to his seven inch every day for years. But there's also some beauty of not even knowing anybody and just going to a hip hop show. And all I know is the music. That's another totally different experience. That's kind of awesome at the same time. I bought tickets the not the last headlining tour of the tour before that for Jedi mind at the truck. <laughs> and they were texting me like, yo, come back. I'm like, nah, man. I, and it said me and Jess, we just want, I just wanted to see the, I, I'm in the same boat. I want to see the show. I want to. And I know if I'm back there doing that gimmick, there is no enjoying the show as a fan. You're immediately removed from the fan part of it right. because you're now in the back world. And I'm so always in the back world. That, like I, I do that for heavy metal too. If it's a heavy metal band that I absolutely love, like we got to see Iron Maiden last year and they did the big tour with all the classics. Nice. And it was just so awesome to sit there for two and a half hours as a fan of Iron Maiden. And it's just like, you need that balance. You can't always be in the both sides. Otherwise you may lose some of the appreciation. Right. What's, what's uh, Jedi mind tricks like at the truck? Um, that show particularly was insane because RA the rugged man opened nice. and it was, uh, off the, the record before his last, uh, full length with Jedi mind. And 
if you know Vinny, you know that in Philly, a lot of the guys come out. And um, you know that he's, uh, we should sidebar this, you are in one of the other, you and Gorilla Biscuits are the two bands that Vinny wants to play a show with. Well, I've been trying to fucking play a show with him for like 10 years, so I'm ready to go right now. Well, it's just interesting because the vibe of a terror show is not unlike a vibe of a Jedi Mind Trick show. Now, I mean, in the 2000s, I was at uh, Jedi Mind, and they had like uh, Fuck the Cops, Mamiya Abu Jamal. This is like, I think I want to say like 2001, 2002, when they just got too big to play the church. And it's still the same vibe. There's people push moshing. The truck don't have stage diving anymore. It's interesting as a, I, I, and you you probably know more than I, but you don't hear the entire, you don't hear four verses. You get the one verse, you get the chorus a bunch of times. It's that beautiful segue into, right. and Sean Price had just passed. So he did this whole blue screen with a picture of him and just did the interlude to the tracks he did on there. I, I, um, the same way when Army when Army of the Pharaohs plays was really interesting because they had four rotating mics and they constantly had to pass them on. But a few times I've seen hip hop live that I've really enjoyed it, and all of it has been on Jedi Minds clock. Seen Wu Tag and Rage back in the day, and it was garbage because forty people with microphones is not a good for forty people <laughs> with live microphones is a bad look. But I I, I find the energy of Jedi Mind and Terror be the same that I go to a lot of shows and I see bands and sometimes you have to be there to see a band when their fans are in the room. And I know it sounds dumb to say, but it's important to say, you know, and watching your band go through the different the phases when that, when that first big record on trust kill was out, there was a whole wave of kids that we were like, where are these guys from? And they fucking went nuts for you. And every couple of years, this is new fucking exciting wave. And it's always awesome to see a new appreciation for your band appear. And they've got that new bloodlust where like people in the back, like, yeah, I see these guys. There's right. always this new young. I mean, that voltage show, some kid came in. He's like, I was like, dude, you seem really pumped. Like, dude, can't wait for terror. And it's great to see that you're still able to provide music to people that gets a younger person. Like this is my first time seeing them. And it's like, you want that out of a band. You don't want that tired. Oh, why nothing to do? And it's, you know, I'm so tired of the too cool. I love the excitement of someone who wants to be there for that moment, you know? That, uh, the Voltage show was, uh, the last day of our tour with Harm's Way and Backtrack. Yes. And, uh, dude, the show was amazing. It was, it was, uh, the tour was really good. And to end it there, it was just uh, that was a great show. Thank you for having us. I don't want to go too much too much into it, but it was a perfect end of that tour. I feel like that's what I want to do as a promoter, and I did that with Blacklisted a couple times where we ended our tour in Philly, and I just always want to make sure that when someone walks off a tour, it's on a good foot. It feel like. I want to go the extra distance to make sure that's the case. So that way someone lays their head at bed at night and goes, man, that was fucking great. You actually talking about voltage. You saw one of my favorite hardcore shows that I've ever put on at with judge wisdom and your Ooh, band. Yeah. yeah, that was great. It, judge was so good. <laughs> Fuck. The thing yeah, we, about, 
Think about that. Mike Judge was afraid to play after Wisdom that night. I'm like, dude, you're Judge. You're Judge, Mike. <laughs> I'm. I wouldn't want to play in, in after Wisdom in Philly for sure. Woof. I remember. Uh, fuck. It was. This is hardcore. Uh, not at the place you do it now. Starlight. Yes. And when they played the Pennsylvania song, I got chills from head to toe. It was just so fucking. They're so. They're such a great band. Uh, it's great a, band, great people, and that song is amazing. I find that when we when we talk about bands like Wisdom and Chains, the younger kids don't relate as well to when a band has a full ass sing along, but yet your band. That's one of the foundation points, like some of them songs and actually going all the way back to how you grew up. So much, I think, of what your childhood birthed some of these lyrics that would be completely impossible to write without that kind of growing up. Like that whole, the one with the underdogs is completely about that. You know, like the whole drive, I think you needed to have that struggle to write these kind of lyrics. And I find it weird that a young kid who wants to mosh will sing along the terror, but then kind of crook crunched her head at a band that has more sing-alongs because you guys have done that thing so fucking well and i've seen so many generations of younger people love terror for the sing-alongs but then miss it in other bands i'll i'll uh i'll uh be thankful that they sing along to us because it makes my job a lot easier but i sometimes too i mean i'm not the judge and jury but there's some bands that i absolutely fucking love and i don't understand how they're not like the biggest band in the world well i think i think a lot of it always comes down to touring and something i was going to actually we can go all the way back to ask about this you, you brought up being on victory as being a big deal and how much would you say has changed or has it stayed the same the importance of label placement when a band does or like when a band's doing releases as far as like, if you think that they get the same fair shake or appreciation from the fans. Hmm. Um, Cause you've been on all of them. Yeah. I think, I mean, back when I first got into hardcore, obviously like revelation was the coolest hardcore label. And then new age came along and that was great. And then victory kind of took over. And, and at that point I would buy any record on that label. You just knew what you were getting and you, you just felt part of it. So you wanted every, and I, I was by no means a collector. So I wasn't getting this for my collection. I was getting this for my, to sharpen my, my hardcore. So anytime Rev put something out, I was waiting for it. Even if I didn't like, you know, when, even when things changed a little bit and burn and quicksand and stuff came out, I was just waiting and I bought records and they were all quality and I loved almost all of them. Same thing with new age, same thing with victory. I don't know if it's my age, but you know, I, I see triple B doing so much and I think it's great. And most of the things he put puts out, I think, are, are really, really great. But I, I feel like there's, I don't know, it, it, it doesn't seem exactly the same to me now. Like, there was like a vibe, 
like uh, there was like a family vibe with like Rev. I obviously wasn't a part of it, but like Rev, it seemed like a tribe, and definitely with Victory, like when when All Out War and Hatebreed and Reach the Sky and all these bands were on on hate on a uh, victory we felt like you know like we never were forced to tour together or there was never anything like that that we had to tour together but we felt like this this unity and like we wanted to tour together i don't know if that really exists anymore well if you think about that specifically and i was maybe driving a little bit in that direction despair hatebreed was a tour all War and Hatebreed were next door neighbors between Connecticut and Poughkeepsie. There were so many shows where I've seen both of them bands play. Um, I've seen I've seen Hatebreed play with Despair. I've seen Hatebreed play with All Out War. I've seen Hatebreed play with Reach the Sky. I've seen Buried Alive play with Reach the Sky. You know, I've seen All Out War Buried Alive with Reach the Sky. I think that when we look at can we go back to the internet interface today, the thought is lost. That's so much of what would be that late 90s. And if we could even throw blood for blood into the mix of victory started out with the bands that were kind of like getting too big for new age or didn't want to be in the same path. And he just happened to have this label and the look somehow, somehow out of nowhere. I don't, I would love to figure out where he found strife and snap case realm to add to that earth crisis integrity mix. But that second wave of victory was just from bands that fucking played every fucking weekend in every single nook and cranny of the East Coast. So when you guys all at different times got signed to victory, it wasn't so much you guys, oh, we felt like we had to. You guys were already doing that in different ways. You know, like I've seen Blood for Blood. I've seen every interaction. I don't think I've ever seen. I haven't seen Despair play with Blood for Blood or any of the bands, but I've seen Reed's Sky and Blood for Blood together. I've seen Blood for Blood and Hatebreed together. I've seen Blood for Blood and All at War together. You know, I've seen and I've seen Blood for Blood. You know, like I've seen all the different combinations, probably besides Blood for Blood and Buried Alive. I don't think I've seen that together. But you guys are all active East Coast bands playing every fucking weekend in any kind of place there was. So I'm not surprised that you guys were comfortable doing it. And do you think that, what do you think? Uh, part of me wants to say, I don't want to say labels don't matter anymore, but I don't know. What do you, I have, do you, do you think labels matter? Do you think there, there I definitely two, doesn't seem to be that label camaraderie, maybe with triple B? I can, I, I, I can espouse this in two parts from a function of a band, the label is a brand. The people that are into hardcore now are not unlike what you just said. And this is what I was getting at with the victory. You had that logo. You had the new age logo. You had the rev logo. You had these, Oh, I want to be associated with the label more than you cared about the music, so to speak. And that's why the buyer knew buying a rev record, it was going to be great. And that was probably the case up until like the, 97 98 where they started trying to bring in different things that kind of like broke out of the fold um victory the same way new age i think they're just he had the unfortunate of always getting the band that would rather be on victory you know and they all right well yeah i guess i can't go here i'll do your record but i think new age's early shit is really some of the best until they got to like upfront and stuff and um 
I feel like young bands are afraid to be on labels that will kick ass immediately and be local to them and stay with them. So they'll jump and get on triple B because they know people value a brand like triple B and triple B does a good job. But if I was in a band that had popularity, I would want to be on a label that has the push automatically and not be like, well, we can't do that because we have seven other records coming out. And I think that the digital age allows smaller labels to have more power in the space, but you'll always have people that want to see a band connected to a brand. Like uh, there was a moment where being on bridge nine was important. And to the point where verse had left a really good situation at rivalry where they were the big band. Cause they were like, why aren't we as big as have heart? Oh, cause they went to bridge nine. Fuck that. We're going to bridge nine. And as soon as they got there, they realized now with the importance of record cycles and, you know, Chris is a major label and there's something to a hardcore size thing. <laughs> He's got a whole release schedule. He's only has so many funds. I guess what I'm saying is I've told a million young bands until you're at the point where you're, you really need like a giant thing. Go with the label. That's going to go all out. You know, there was a local label here. That guy was at every band show when they would play, he brought all his merch. He was a supporter of his bands. The bigger label you get, the further away from you get from your label person. It's harder for, you know, to get that label support, but a smaller label is going to give you a ton of support early on. Granted, as you see it now, you need them big inter- international connections. You need that giant distribution thing. So there's a balance of it. Labels are brands more so, I think, than anyone uniquely doing anything because Revelation is the distributor of independent hardcore records. You know, they're going to buy it from a label. It's going to go up there. It doesn't matter if it's Sam Triple B, Fast Break, someone's going to sell it to Revelation. It's going to get out there. The name counts to some people, but there's a ton of small bands coming out from small labels, like from within plead your case. And those guys, um, what's that kid, uh, lumpy. He has days. There's a lot of smaller labels that remind me of the nineties where they're all finding these bands in these different places and pushing them out in hopes of, you know, because they don't get the bands that want to go to triple B. So as you see a cycle of both. I think what you were saying, like Reaper and Trapped Under Ice was a perfect example of what you're saying. Trapped Under Ice was ready to fucking go, and Reaper was like in a mind state of we're going to do everything for our bands, and even if it's not monetarily the greatest decision, we're just going to do it because we want to fucking push and push and push. And it was explosive and fucking beautiful. And then Obviously, after that, you could see Patrick doing Backtrack and Take Offense and a million other bands. And that was a really cool time for hardcore. That was super cool. And you bringing up Bridge Nine, that was amazing, too. Like when Terra started, we had this really hard decision. Do we want to be on Indecision? Because Mandel is here in California and such an awesome person and just an amazing person, an amazing label. But there's Bridge Nine and Bridge Nine is doing so much, and obviously we ended up doing the Bridge Nine thing. But two two other examples that were, are really cool. But I just maybe I'm too far removed now, and um, I'm on a label, so I don't have to really think about it. But it just doesn't seem to me like there's that same like that like Reaper is such a perfect example, and that's maybe because it's so close to me. Like 
he did those tours like the united forces tour and like all these cool things and that that was such a cool time i i agree wholeheartedly i feel like every couple years there's a phase where a label comes together and they get that one thing and it kind of creates uh, a buzz around them and then like all things the buzz goes so far and a bigger fish comes and says hey i know you're really happy but this is what we can do for you and it's it's very hard to deny someone opportunity to try to go further i have i've seen a lot of different things i feel like it's easy for me to armchair quarterback things i i was dumb we chose too damn hype because he was from philadelphia instead of going to um, another label. And then when Andy King wanted us, I still would rather be on a label that was here. And I knew the guy than be in a charge of Alvaran from Europe, which would also give us eulogy. And that was probably a mistake because we punishment never got known in Europe because Thorpe didn't have what Alvaran had, but I am, I'm a baby. I want to know the guy who's putting money into my band (laughs) and telling people, Hey, this is cool knows me. I don't care if he doesn't like the band. I want to know the person who I have to have business with. So that way I can have a conversation with him. It's it. I'm very much like that. Even with booking shows, I, right. the kid, uh, Brian from knock loose shadow Rome played with him at East coast tsunami. And before I went to book him on this hardcore, I don't, I felt bad. I was like, come on after the show, me and you're gonna have a talk. And I think he was like scared or something. I'm like, I love, I would like to do your band on my fest, but if you don't give a fuck about this hardcore, just tell me because I don't want to waste my time asking someone to book you if you don't care. And right. his conversation with me was really impactful because I just had thought, ah, you know what? This kid, he wants to be the next Sepultura. He don't have, no, he don't care about hardcore, you know, but I, I, I need that face-to-face conversation. I need that interaction with the person to want to support them, you know, and, and work with them. Maybe I'm just retarded. It was, when they, when they, uh, took us on tour it was really cool to see like they were so hands-on about every venue they were playing and on top of that they picked a i'll say a local band to put on every show so it, they were like okay we're a little bit bigger now you know we're doing good but they're putting the kid the in every city, they're putting like a small new hardcore band with you know their friends on every show, and that's you know that's something that Terror definitely does also. But to see them doing that showed me, like you're saying, how much they actually care that they're just not trying to be this te- stepping stone or getting some you know outside the box band that's going to bring a different fan base. They're putting like a straight up hardcore band on every show to open, which I thought was super super cool. Well, going back to what we talked about, Bitter End, as a band who's played so many packages, there's a thousand bands that can bring something to the table. And my hardest job as a promoter, and I've probably done a really terrible job at times of getting very pissed off that the agent doesn't see the value in the local slot. So Knock Loose came up a lot like Tever did. I mean, yes, you had a little momentum with the demo, but you know, your first show was still in a basement. You saw the people, you physically saw the people that were coming to your shows. You knew the people in the bands that were supporting Terror when you're playing with them. So Knock Loose went through the same thing. They were in the, I call it the upside down, like the stranger things. Like they were in like the upside down of hardcore, 
these weird like metal bands and they knew the bands that they were playing with for the first couple years and then when the vibe was getting bigger and they had the opportunity to say we're going to take terror on tour they didn't stop and go all right you know we don't need the local openers the local opening slot is super important for promoters because you have a facebook and social media everybody has one and the label or the management they do the marketing maybe i'll get lucky and scott vogel will share on instagram a flyer of the week that they're playing in philly if i have a local band on my show they're gonna pump that show for two months because they want everyone to know they're playing with all them bands <laughs> and that's their attaboy and what that does for me is if i put a local band on the opening spot of a show that's going to do five or 600 persons, that's going to expose our local people to that band. And it's going to help grow them at the local level. And so many young agents are just ignorant to that. So when a band like knock loose and terror takes a moment and says, we want to make sure there's a different opening band. We don't care if it's a five band bill instead of a four, whatever the situation is, it helps everybody. You're helping each local promoter provide an opening spot within you're now helping a new band get a new audience. And it just, it actually just replenishes. You're actually replenishing every local scene with that opening spot. And then to have an interaction deep enough to know who's good in them spots that just shows connection. So I always appreciate it. In fact, before all the stuff with stone and that kid happened, you're the knife was our opener for Philly. And I was like, I really want them to open. I really want them to open. And it was just a benefit that we had them actually open the whole tour. But that was my hope to have them just be the opener for Philly, just so people can be exposed to what they are. And I think that something that people do too often is expose their friends before they're really wet, really ready for it, or they're not really that good to opportunities when there's so many bands that just need the exposure and the rest will come that there's a balance where you said, I don't think labels matter as much. A lot of what happens and terror has been fantastic is you have always been the leg up for so many younger bands and you, you know, you did it with backtrack trapped and rights. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. You always give a leg up to the opening bands and the, and then bands coming up. And that goes so far in continuing to build the next people who are coming up in hardcore. And I don't think enough bands who have been around as long as your band has have done that for newer bands coming up. I'm just thankful that we're in a position to um, expose people and stuff like that. I mean, we both know terror isn't like the biggest band in the world. And, you know, we're always uh, ups and downs and ins and outs. But to be able to, you know, to us to play to a couple hundred people is still super awesome. But I know to a smaller new band to get in front of like 300, 400 people is like uh, a totally, you know, wild experience. And to be able to give that to some bands is amazing because I know for me, when, when like Slugfest was playing, we'd play local shows with other local bands to like 75 people. But then if we got on a show with like Integrity and there's like 250 people there, you're like, holy shit, I'm going to get to play to all these people in a packed room. And that can just give you, I don't know if confidence is the right word. Yeah. It gives you some confidence to be able to like go up there and do it again and again and again, and just keep working and just keep, uh, 
keep the momentum going forward. I feel like confidence is something that a lot of younger kids need. Uh, somebody in turnstile was backstage before they were about to play at this hardcore. And I was like, there's so many people are out there. I'm like, yeah, man, it's gonna be great. And they're like, it's a lot. I said, okay, how did you learn how to swim? <laughs> Start swimming in a pool. If you swim in a small pool, you can swim in a big pool. You swim in a big pool, swim in the ocean. You got to get that. You got to get your feet wet. You got to go out there. And I'm telling you, having the exposure and being exposed is so important. And I feel like it should be a responsibility, but because of the way tours are booked, not necessarily bands preferences, there's a disconnect from sometimes some of the agents whose only job is really get the show in a good spot, make sure the deal goes for the band. And then we're set that the, that there's a missing piece where the interaction with the local becomes important because that local, some dude, I've seen it where a local band has played down the street from like an older band and the local show kills the touring act. Right. And I, and I've, I've advised, Hey, 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 you might want this. <laughs> Don't. And I, and I can't tell you how many times I've been told now nah, we'll be good. And, and it's, it sucks. Cause you, I always want the best show for everybody. Um, thinking about you playing in Slugfest. I know that you were going to shows way before you were in that band. And I think about what do you think your initial goal of just being in a band was before even slug? You played drums in a band too, but when you did Slugfest, what was that drive to get on stage with the mic? I can just clearly remember seeing um, Solid State, who was pretty much Snapcase before Snapcase. And they're... Their singer and Snapcase's original singer was this kid, Chris Gallus. And he was, you know, there was zero tolerance who were like gods to be. And they were amazing and like untouchable. And I would have been too scared to go near them. Uh, they were just like a different level. But Solid State were kind of just kids like me, maybe a year or two older than me. But they were just... Uh, on my level and they they played smaller shows and i remember seeing chris gallus on stage and just uh like you said at this point i was quote unquote playing drums because i was pretty bad at it but i saw him chris gallus going off on stage and he was just like a uncaged animal going crazy and it just said i just said to myself that I want to do that. I want to be a front man. So I think uh, all the bands I had been in were with my brother and we just decided we were going to start a band with me singing and him on guitar. And I think, I don't think we had any goals. <laughs> I don't think we had anything maybe to put out a demo, but um, it was so the idea of being, in a band was so fresh to me. I don't think playing outside of Buffalo, I don't think was, I mean, there was probably those thoughts in my head, but I didn't think they were obtainable. Um, over time, you know, once you put a seven inch out and you meet someone like Chris Logan that brings you to Hamilton, then that becomes easier. And, and I mean, Slugfest only played as far as Detroit, to Syracuse maybe. So, I mean, that's like a four hours in each direction. So 
I just don't even think there was any goals. It sure wasn't to make money. It sure wasn't to be cool. I, I, I want to say we had no goals. <laughs> when you were getting shows for Slugfest, was it just from people that you knew? Or were you, like, how hard were you actively pursuing playing beyond Buffalo? Or do you think it was kind of because it was so fresh, you didn't even have a direct goal or even the idea to like reach out and try to play further? Hmm. I mean, if anything, it was just meeting other kids in other bands from different cities. I don't even think I knew what a promoter was. And I don't think a lot of the shows that I played at that time, there was a quote unquote promoter. I think if anything, it was just a kid in another band that just hit you up or hit up other bands and, and had them play in their city. So I guess by definition, it was a promoter, but I don't think they treated it like they were a promoter. They were just a kid in a band that wanted to have a show in their city. So I think if anything, it would be like, uh, I'm trying to think, like like Abnegation would come yeah. and play in Buffalo. They would they come and play in Buffalo. And next thing you know, hey, we, we just played in Buffalo. We'd love to have you in Erie sometime. Great, let's do it. Um, I'd like to say the same thing with like integrity in Cleveland, but it, you know, I don't, maybe it happened like that. I think, you know, I can remember like just like integrity having despair come and play like uh, a record release show. So I think at that time it was more just like people in bands calling you up or, and I mean, calling your landline and trying to get you on the phone and bringing you to their city. I guess like like John McKegg and Ted Etal, Syracuse and Albany, they were like actual promoters. Those were probably the actual first promoters I dealt with and started to understand what a promoter was. I feel like that is the way a lot of hardcore was in the early stages of the 90s and then towards the end it got really immediately organized from the band stopped being as involved in doing their own shows. And there was different people or there were certain clubs bands would play at and they might be able to put a bill together. Right. Um, and it, so it kind of changed a lot of the landscape quickly. Now, when you were, when you guys were leaving town, you had already traveled to these places just from shows, right? Like you, your first time you were in Cleveland, you had already been there for shows or was the first time you were traveling out of Buffalo was the play? Um, I mean, definitely Erie, Hamilton, Toronto, Rochester, Syracuse. These are all places I went to all the time for shows. How about Cleveland, Pittsburgh? Those were far? a little bit farther. Those were more like four hours as those other places were like two. But I, I would guess my first time going to Cleveland and Pittsburgh were probably for a despair show. Um, but those, those cities I mentioned first were like any band coming in those areas, I was getting in my car or someone else's car and going to those shows. Um, and sometimes it was a tour and I'd go to three of those shows. I'd go to the, the Syracuse show, the Buffalo show and the Erie show or the Toronto show. So that was just like a no brainer. If I heard about any show in any of those cities, I was going there. 
what's interesting, I think aside from Cleveland and maybe Pitt, the other towns are always like the B track as far as tours go. But so many sick bands have come from that that I've always wanted to hear what it was like to be a band or a person to go to shows from that whole little triangle of like Erie, Syracuse, Buffalo, you know, like it's not quite the East coast. It's a little bit far East to be the Midwest. And you guys had your, it's like literally its own weird Bermuda triangle. And actually you just fucked me up by saying that you were going up into Toronto. But, um, would you say because you lived out there, you were more into road trips than you think, um, when you moved out to LA or when you were living in Arizona? When I first moved to LA, we were, uh, and I say we, me, Nick, Todd, um, we'd go to, and the, the fucked up thing is I can road trip from Buffalo to Syracuse in two and a half hours. And that might be the same time to get from fucking like where I lived in North Hollywood to the showcase theater, you know, which is like, 40 miles but it still can take two and a half hours i forgot about la traffic i'm so dumb (laughs) so insane but we would you know we would go to shows all over southern california oh have you ever played in ojai or been to that place i've been to a show in ojai uh we always played in northern california with zach nelson and in control and he was pretty forward he's like i don't think anybody's gonna like you guys here but he was always super cool no no i I, dude punishment was not a a cool band enough like and i don't mean like we were t- and like cool. We weren't that kind of band, I think. And I think it's actually better to be honest. But I don't think people really care. We always played showcase. We would play showcase. We uh, Gonzo did a show for us at Pomona. Yes. We would play different. We would play those kind of places. But Ohio at that time had some insane shows. I want to get Zach Nelson on the show. He does a podcast, yeah, and I just started great. catching up on it. But like, yeah, I could see them Ohio shows, and that was, I guess, that was when you you were just moving there, right? Two thousand one, two thousand two. Yep. Yeah, that was one of Terror's first shows. Where at Ohio, Todd, I think Todd used to book shows there, and that was such a like a bizarre thing to me because you would drive out into the middle of nowhere and play the Ohio Women's Center in this tiny, tiny town in the middle of nowhere. And hundred of fucking kids would show up and go the fuck off. It was fucking awesome. That place was great. You know, the the uh, showcase, obviously, Chain Reaction, down to San Diego to the Shea Cafe, um, up into the, like, uh, where Zach lived, like, in Oxnard and Ventura. So you could road trip all over just Southern California. And we would go to shows all the time, all the fucking time. And then eventually we start playing and touring so much. So you kind of miss a lot of that. You know, there's, it always sucks. You're on tour and, you know, death threats playing in LA and you're like, motherfucker, bad timing. You guys also played a lot and are not a lot, but you guys definitely had some wild Tijuana shows, right? Yeah. So you're we one of the few with, people we with in control down there. You're one of these few people that have had crazy shows just over the border in Canada and crazy shows just over the border in Mexico. <laughs> I probably am one of the few people that could get to a different country in an hour or two and then be insane and be back in your bed by the fucking next day. Do you ever feel reinvigorated about hardcore after leaving a European tour? 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, Europe has been so good to Terror. Um, we met some of our best friends and and work allies. That's kind of a weird term, but like, no, it's a good, it's a good term. Like, you know, like people at MAD and like our tour manager, Errol and like our, our old merch girl, AK, who's now married with, with a, a daughter. So she doesn't tour with us anymore. But these are like people that if I had a real problem, I know I could count on them from a different continent to do anything in their power to help me out. They're like actual real, real lifelong friends. And the scene over there is fucking amazing. Like we've, we've had some of the best times of our lives over there. So, I mean, we go there pretty often. So sometimes when we leave there, it's like, thank God we're not in Europe. We're home. But sometimes when we're in Europe, I'm not thinking to myself, this is like the best time of my life. Well, I asked you the question because I have had moments where obviously I always kid around that my time in shadow realm was just reminding me that shadow realm should have just been a band from Germany. I mean, the <laughs> lyrics are terrible. The name of the band is terrible. And, but like, you get a new appreciation for how non-Americans view hardcore and like why I brought up road trip and also ties into this. There are people that literally travel to four or five of your shows because they know that yeah. this is, you know, they want to see it. And that's something that's gone and gone. You do see it here because long Island, New York city, New Jersey, PA, Wilkesboro are all close. So you do have kids that'll travel to these shows, but it really took me to have to tour Europe to see the appreciation the value of what a person is like excited about your band. I felt like at that time, hardcore was like, Oh, I'm so over this. I'm too cool to come to the show. And you go to Europe and there's some kid from Bulgaria crying. And you're like, what's like, I'm so excited to see your band. You're like, why we suck. (laughs) (laughs) We've, we've got this. No, we've got this. There's this guy in Europe. His name's Tommy. And we literally call him Tommy nine toes now because he, lost a toe at a terror show a monitor fell off the stage and landed on his foot and he now has nine toes and this fucking guy will you'll you'll just like you know be at a at the venue and then take a walk and come back and he'll be out front waiting and you'll see him at like 10 shows in a month and eventually you have i had to go up to him and be like yo what's up with you and he just takes the train to all these shows. So of course I'm like, tell me when you're coming, we'll put you on the guest list. And, and sometimes it's raining out. I'm like, yo, come inside or give them food and stuff. So this dude will take a train. Uh, he's probably been to a hundred terror shows. It's fucking wow. insane. It's insane. Well, I feel like some people just interact in a way that is a like a legit chemical reaction that people need. And I can yeah. see that person. I, I, I truly, I can't think of another way to put it. Um, there's a ton of people that come to mind that I feel like for certain bands would travel to the far ends just because they don't want to miss that opportunity. Now, obviously, we know how you were raised. How weird is it to be able to say that you traveled as far and wide and as often you have knowing how you grew up? I mean, moving back to Buffalo kind of had me thinking, like, I'm sure there's a lot of people that I, like, went to, I don't know, school, high school with, middle school, 
that have lived in Buffalo their whole lives, maybe taken a few vacations, maybe saved up for years to do a year, go to Europe or Japan or something. And then I think about my life, the different places I've lived, all the places I've traveled, the people I've met all over the world, the, the you know, there's one thing taking a vacation somewhere. <laughs> and then there's another thing of like going to tour in Thailand and Stefan from fucking kickback taking you out for the night and showing you a different side of Thailand. That's not the hardcore scene Thailand and not the tourist Thailand. So like all these experiences that I had, it's like very grateful. And, and there's, you know, I've lost a lot of things. I've missed out on a lot of things because of it, because of all the traveling, but I wouldn't trade it in for the world. It's pretty, it's pretty fucking crazy. Like, and, and it's, I don't want to say it's easy, but if you're in, in a hardcore band and you're not an asshole and you network, there's a good chance your band's going to end up in Europe and, and you get to go to Europe. That's fucking incredible. What you do at that time, whether you meet people and make lifelong friends or you don't explore the cities and you sit in the backstage and hang out on Instagram, that's up to you. But the, the fact that hardcore has such a reach and a network that if you put some time in and some effort and kind of are cool to people that you'll end up in Europe. I think that's fucking amazing. I think about hardcore and the blessings it's given so many of us, you know, uh, I'm from a similar city. Uh, there's two places. Most Philadelphians have gone in their life up the mountains, down the shore. Maybe they, they got some money together and they went to a Disneyland down in Florida or they got a family in Florida. There's people who I grew up with that, never left the city. And I think about friends of mine who have died before their 21st birthday. And I think about the fact that I, yeah, I pour concrete for a living, but like two years ago, we flew out on a Thursday night and played leads. And I was back Monday morning, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> hardcore is a blessing to so many. And it kind of in the modern age doesn't get seen for the, some of the, amazing values such as and and it stays true through your time into today a band comes through town people offer to put you up you know you go to europe the promoter's like no 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 let me cook for you you know like we played lisbon with the four of the glory guys and they cooked for us and it was fantastic man and, and i can't think of like you know uh, i tell i told a story on the podcast i did with juice Via email, Drew said, hey, yeah, don't worry, I'll be at work. I'll leave the key under the rug. Just make yourself at home. Complete stranger besides four emails, and our doors are opened up to us. This is something that is not unique to our culture, but pretty special in our culture. And I wonder how you feel about the impact of it, because that's how you grew up. You grew up in hardcore, and you're uh, a man who's now grown up in hardcore. How do you feel about this kind of like different alternate reality than the way most people live. I mean, I feel extremely blessed. Uh, I, when I was uh, in fifth grade, my mom moved to Texas 
with my two sisters and I was just dead set against it. So I moved in with my father and my stepbrother and he, he, my father remarried and, uh, his new wife had a previous son who's my stepbrother Jay who got me into everything. So I often think if I went to Houston with my mom and this was before I knew anything about underground music, I was listening to like Motley Crue and and Rat. <laughs> I have these weird thoughts like would I have run into Rob from Will to Live? Was like it was it my destiny to be into hardcore no matter where I went, or would I have became like this Texas normal civilian and what the fuck would I be like? But I wouldn't, you know, trade it in for anything. It's like I'm 47 since uh, 2002. I haven't worked for anybody. Um, I've tried, I've, you know, I've been to Japan, I don't know, six times, Europe, like 30 times. I've gotten to play and meet Jules from Alone in the Crowd. I can hit up Hoya from Madball, who's like the coolest fucking person in the world, and talk shit with him. I've got to, you know, sing on crazy bands records and i i literally don't think i'm all that talented i i you know i don't have this great voice i can scream loud and jump around like a fucking unhinged idiot and i think it's all just comes down to the relationships you make and and the fact that i have this real appreciation for the scene and i've always cared and i've always stayed involved and I've let bands sleep on my floor and, uh, and, you know, all the things that come along with being part of the scene. I've done zines, I've done book shows, I've put out records, I've, you know, done a million things just to be a part of the scene. So I don't think it's talent. I think it's just being a part of it and appreciating it. And I think I do still have that maybe now more than ever, you know, it's, it's, and I mean, I don't have a ton of money and I don't have lots of material things, but the things I did gain from hardcore are way more important to me than that. Well, that's kind of where I was driving at. I feel like to have a life on the road, you have to basically eschew an entire lifestyle that is like accruing the big house, the kids, the family, some guys manage to do the kids and the family and the touring but they balance it by only touring a certain amount of time. I feel like your life specifically, the drive has been the bands and the pursuit of what you love. And you've had to make concessions so that we could follow that path. Is there any life regrets in regards to the choices? Or are you happy with where you're at? Um, Both. There's definitely regrets, but I'm all ultimately. Are they BAM related or are they life related? Uh, I mean, drinking that most of the regrets I would come up with would go back to drinking, um, doing stupid shit while I'm drunk, feeling like shit while I'm the next day, uh, fucking my body up because I'm drunk and not taking care of myself. That's the big regret. And, and 
you know, obviously it's a choice I made, but being on the road so much lends yourself to indulging in alcohol. And, um, that's, that's, that's the big regret. Obviously I could find other things that I fucked up from being on tour too much, but if I would have made the choice to drink less, I think I would have maybe enjoyed things more, but what the fuck can you do about it? You just got to go forward, learn the lesson, pick up another day, right? Amen. Where do you see with all the things that you have accomplished? I know I've ha- I have a copy of one of your zines. I know you worked with Reaper. Is there something in hardcore that you haven't accomplished yet that you're looking to pursue? Or is it just like whatever comes forward? The only thing that comes to mind is there's some countries I would still like to go to. We, we went to Puerto Rico once. I would love to go back there. Uh, I've been trying to get to Alaska. Obviously, that's not a country, but... Um, it's his own country. <laughs> it's hard Isra- to get there. Israel is a place we've never been. Africa is a place we've never been. So there's these you know places that I'd still really like to get to. None of them are like I'm actively every month hitting up a booking agent being like, we got to do this. We got to do this. If it ever falls into place and we can like check that box, that would be really cool. But I mean, there's really nothing. We we've put out records. We've played with all the bands we want to play with. We've done the tours. Uh, I'm pretty content to be honest. You're in a band with Sammy. I know. That's think about that. Cool, huh? Like you went I, from. Think about it. You went from saying that I wanted, I would buy anything that was on Revelation Records. You're in a band with Sammy. On Revelation Records. On Revelation Records. You're on Revelation Records. <laughs> when 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 World Be Free was uh, recording and trying to brainstorm on what label we'd like to be on. It, for me, it was a no-brainer. I just want to be on Rev. I just want to be on Rev. But Sammy's been on Rev so much, he sees it. I don't want to say he was like, I don't want to be on Rev, but he was throwing around other ideas. And I was like, no, it has to be on Rev. It has to be on Rev. It has to be on Rev. So it's funny how like two different brains on the same project look at it different ways. Well, I think that I think that's come into play a lot with you because you have to had multiple people with even says and bands that you've done, like, you know, terror now with world be free. I, uh, I remember you sent me that track and I was just mind blown because, you know, I think you and I talked about how much we love that Sib record and how fucking awesome it was. And here you are, you're fucking up there shredding and it, it felt right. You, you, you're not a, you're not a fish out of water on that track and live. It came off fucking awesome. I think that it's good that you took the opportunity. Do you see yourself, now with the uh, quarantine and COVID that you're looking to other projects or have you just been focused on working on what's going to come as soon as the doors back open? I mean, I've, we've stayed really busy during this time. And, and when I say we, I mean, Tara, we recorded these two cover songs that we put out. We, we uh, had tracks that we dove in and, and on re- unearthed re-earthed revisited revisited uh some of them was just as simple as nick like 
touching up on like mixing and stuff. Some of them I had to redo the vocals because they were uh, just not good. Um, we were doing those garage cast podcast type things. So Terror, for the most part, stayed really active. Um, the Buried Alive record came out. The World Be Free record came out. Those were all previously recorded. But um, uh, I, I think this whole lockdown's kind of made me realize that my brain's so like, I work on lists. Like I have so many lists on my phone, like what I have to do today, my goals, not, not so much goals, but things I got to get done in my personal life, things I got to get done in terror, list, 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 list. This kind of sh showed me that when something like this comes along, all your lists, you can fucking throw them in the garbage because you just got to go with the flow. So I think it's been pretty healthy for me to just like uh, realize I can't control everything and all these things that I want to get done are on pause and just try to enjoy it the best I can or do the best I can with what's in front of me. A quote that I go to a lot is Marcus Aurelius is, we have no control of outside events only how we react to them. And I feel like this year specifically, we should all take heed to that because there's been so many curveballs thrown at people. And I feel that some have lost fervor. I've, I've said it on other podcasts, the bands who were looking for something that isn't all heart are going to walk away from this. Oh, this isn't sustainable. I got to find a living, you know, this is going to work. And it actually is going to open up the door to newer bands to, to fill that void, which is kind of fucked up in its own right, because there is bands that can just walk off this earth and the show, the shows will continue. Um, I say all this because I think about, you know, what, what hardcore was for you has never changed. It's only kind of morphed, you know, first a fan, then a guy in a band locally, then, you know, despair was regional bird alive was international. Terror, I think you guys might be one of the first bands to play Mars if fucking Elon gets his way. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> but I feel like you've always maintained a balance of growth in where you're at with hardcore, and you've had this really healthy relationship. Some of it you touched on because you um, have a love of hip-hop. But what do you think keeps your... Like, what really keeps you from just being like... God damn it! I'm near fifty. This is all getting too much for me. Like, where? Why do you have this? Because I, I don't. don't know. I know a lot. Of, I have a lot of friends who are older than you, and they're they're like, I can't believe you're still doing this. Or like, you know, why are you still? You know, like, where where does the connection really tie in with you and hardcore? I don't know. I've thought about this. I mean, you know, like going back to like saying when there's a show, I I go to it. Like. There's, there's been times in LA when, when I'm home and, and there's like, I'll see a flyer on Instagram for like, let's say Dare, who's a, a, a new band that I love in like four bands that I never heard of. And they're playing in some venue that's like some tiny little space in LA. I'll get in my car and go there alone. And I'm literally standing there by myself, checking these bands out thinking I'm twice as old as anyone here. Does this make me a fucking weirdo? What the fuck am I doing here? But at the same time, it's like totally natural that I just got in the car and went there for me. 
So I don't know. I just still enjoy it, love it, respect it, need it, believe in it, cherish it. I mean, I'm saying all these positive things. Believe me, there's lots of things about hardcore that frustrate me. There's lots of times that I'm getting ready to pack my bag to go to fucking Europe. And I'm like, I don't want to get on a plane. I don't want to go on tour. These things all happen too. It's not all like. Well, I feel like you have to, well, you have to be positive because if you push out the positive energy, it'll return. And that's something I had to learn. And I know that, you know, that I can be one of the most fucking discerningly negative people (laughs) about things. And I, and I think there's a, there's a level of criticism that you and I could talk about that you will understand my frustration where we wrote that on the internet. It's not for the whole internet to understand. And it's not for the whole entire internet to have an opinion on a, on a frustration. And I think that the internet has one giant detracting point is that we're not supposed to know everybody's individual thought on everything all the time. And not everybody's negative or positive thoughts should have a peanut gallery with their counter counter thought or why my thought is wrong. You know, and I noticed that you mentioned Instagram, but I love that you're both not always on Instagram, but you're on Instagram. You're not like (laughs) the most ubiquitous. You're not like our brother, uh, Mexi Mike, who's on there like a million times in a thousand posts, but you're, you're, you're tied in without being like, Here's here's Scott Vogel again selling me some terror T-shirt. You manage to keep a presence without being annoying or overbearing, and I think that that kind of keeps you in touch with the younger generation. And I I I can't tell you how many times I've had to lean on you and complain about something, and we've been wrong or not agreeing right. each other with it. <laughs> I think that uh, a lot of what may frustrate you sometimes is just the anxiety of the whole thing. You know? Yeah, I th- I think too we did so much for so long that it's only natural to, to want to not go on tour again. Cause you've been on tour and you just want your own space. But I, I the, like the question you asked me before, what I don't know, because there has been generation after generation, after friend, after friend, after band, after band, after, of just people I've known that have just come and gone and I'm just still here. I don't fucking know why, you know, I don't know, but I mean, I like Instagram. It's cool. Sometimes it frustrates me. Sometimes I go on there just to look at stuff to talk shit about in my head or or to someone else. But you know, sometimes I'll, I'll, like I was just saying, I'll see a flyer for a show I didn't know about and two hours later I'm at the show and I'm like, this is why Instagram's cool as shit. Or I'll see a picture of me and in Ian Larrabee from fucking 20 years ago. And I'll be like, this is why Instagram is fucking great. And then I'll see other stuff that I'm like, this is why Instagram is terrible. Well, it's a, it's always a myopic viewpoint. Uh, I, I always say like Facebook was great because we got to reconnect with our friends. Then Instagram came out and we had to see pictures. Some of the pictures were cool. Some of it was just boobs. Other was like a projection of someone's life that's not real. And then Twitter came along and I liked it better when it was Hoya talking about being on Twitter and he was calling them twats. 
I like that era of Twitter more so than every single kid becoming a critic like he's work, or working for the New York Times and giving us a dissertation on what he thinks is hardcore. And then I've kind of learned to just look at them all from different lenses. One of the things that I think that lends to why you stay involved in hardcore is you don't look to criticize where something's short. Like you love zero tolerance still. You don't compare every new band to, well, they're never going to be as good as zero tolerance, you know? And uh, a lot of the older guys kind of have their moment and then they walk away when they think their moment is the penultimate thing. There it is. I have my hardcore moment. I'm going to move on. And I feel like you've lived in so many hardcore moments that the rush is still there. You know, I saw um, Gorilla Biscuits play an outdoor venue in Southern California, I don't know, about two years ago. And it was jaw dropping. I got like goosebumps and I was like, holy shit. That that's the old part of me. But at the same time, I can remember maybe a few months before that, maybe a year before that, I saw Fury play a smaller show in L.A., but I got the same exact feeling and the same exact vibe. I had goosebumps and was watching a younger generation go off to a younger band and watch a, a younger band do their thing, and I felt the same exact way. So that maybe lends to, you know, I can appreciate the old but I definitely appreciate the the youth too. It's fucking, it's so, I, I love getting a new demo and putting it on and being like, wow, this band is doing it just the way I want them to. Well, I feel like that's a huge aspect of what will keep hardcore moving forward is allowing the youth to either remind us of some of the old times. And there's some great bands that take insane amounts of, you know, inspiration from older stuff that we love and that's what attracts us to us. And then there's newer bands that go off on their own path and you got to appreciate how they're taking hardcore in a different direction. And the importance of both are why hardcore 40 years later is still something that is a youth culture and drives it more. So I said to someone the other day, like CBGB's is revealed and uh, reveled rather of, for being this very famous venue, but the shows I went to, you know, um, people chain smoking the whole time, disgusting, sweaty, <laughs> and it was cool to be a part of those shows and see them. But if I had to pick, I'd rather see Gorilla Biscuits at somewhere like Gilman with like a, you can actually see the band. You can see the stage than something like a CB's. And I think that in 2019, Gorilla Biscuits played fucking, Gilman Street. That's a fucking crazy thing. Hardcore still is managing to interact in the modern time with some of the greats at all these, you know, at it, it's just it's awesome that they're still doing it. And I and I I think that the appreciation has to be for both to stay excited about hardcore in general. I agree, and I think that's part of what keeps me here, you know. Like I, I'm thinking if if the world wasn't the way it is right now, I'd be scouring to see what shows are going on in Buffalo and people 
might be like, what's this old man doing here? Who the fuck is that guy? But that would just be my go-to. Get to a fucking show, see what's going on in Buffalo, and and, and being part of it. Do you think when you were going to them small shows in LA that it was easy for you to be there, but then hard because you were thinking like, I don't want to be like the Scott Vogel. I just want to be at the show. What do you think that the kids just go, Oh, that's Scott. He's always here and it's chill. How does, how do you work within the presence of who you are in a scene while just trying to be someone enjoying a show? I would think that most people, uh, know that I'm just a very average hardcore kid. You know, I don't, I don't dress up in a costume or, uh, pretend to be who I'm not or want a bunch of attention. I would, I would hope just in the same way that I get up on stage and the same thing I'm, I'm wearing and just play the set. And then I'm just excited that people are there and if they have appreciation that I'm in a band and be able to do it, that people see me that when I come to a show that I'm uh, not looking for um, people to tell me how cool I am or that they think this or that, that I'm just there to be part of the scene and that I enjoy going to shows and stuff like that. So I would think people think of me like that. I do, you know, sometimes run across people that are giving me, lots of props and want to take pictures and want me to sign things and stuff like that. And um, I try to be accommodating and uh, not be like, you know, sometimes I'll say, yeah, I'll sign that, but I don't know if you really want my autograph. I'm just right here. We can just hang out instead or talk and stuff. But I would think that people just see me as a ordinary person. I hope. Well, I think not having like your entire head tattooed or being like a uh, a character <laughs> like an Isaac kind of right. lets you blend a little bit better. But one of the things that like uh, you you mentioned before, just moshing at a show, we did backtrack and Marauder, and you were out there in the pit like everybody else. And I liked that the young kids, a didn't give a fuck if you're in the pit and they'll kick you, and b there was like no like, oh my god, Scott Vogel's here. Like there was a res- <laughs> there was still that old school respect that the people in the bands are also the kids in the crowd and vice versa. And the fact that you still support heavily into that very important tenet of hardcore also lends to your longevity. I would be in the pit more often, but I think people will fucking fuck me up at this old age and I gotta stay away. I remember (laughs) we, uh, we played a show in, um, in Albany recently, not recently, I don't know, a couple of years ago. And uh, it was this bit of benefit show and tons of bands were playing and that band dead and dying who are members of dying breed. Yeah. Uh, they, they were playing and they went into a dying breed song and I so badly like wanted to go off. And I looked over at Martin and Martin looked at me and he kind of shook his head like, you're going to get fucked up. Don't do it. So I just kind of <laughs> stayed on the side. <laughs> uh, there was a moment at a This Is Hardcore where Killing Time had played and it was you, uh, Chris, who wasn't even in your band at the time. Cruel Ham had just been playing. There was Bob from Bane. I think even Ian. 
there was a bunch of dudes just in the pit repping for killing time. Yes. And it made me just so happy because what I always try to do as a promoter is I want the bands who are playing. And that's what the event, this hardcore really does for me is like so many people from bands get a chance to go off or just be excited about other bands. And I, I, I start that this off to say to you, how many times have you been on tour with bands where you feel like the people you're on tour with know who you are, know what your band is, but really they don't give a fuck. And it just kind of takes the wind out of like, why are we talking today? You didn't watch us. You know, like <laughs> <laughs> I always get so aggravated. Be like, Oh, good set, man. Like I don't ever want to, I never wanted to hear that. I think that's half of why, like talk about like reasons for why I stopped. Like I realized like, I really actually don't need to be on stage to still love hardcore, you know? And I've always, I always felt like the tour. Yeah. Good set always aggravated me when I know that I watch for the people in the pit. I see the dudes, you know, like we toured with knuckle dust. Those dudes are in the pit for us. We're in the pit for them. It's such a weird, it's such a weird world where our fan, our fan, our fandom for a band that we're on tour with doesn't go away. When the minute we're on stage together. Yeah, that is weird. I, I mean, that's one of the the good things about taking these young bands on tour. They'll f- a lot of times they'll just fucking go off, which is amazing. Like the the last tour we did before this, we did with Magnitude, and those kids were diving and stuff, which was was really cool. And like, you know, I can go down the list of Trapped Under Ice, Backtrack, Take Offense, Naysayer, like all these people. But in the same time, you'll have people from Terror going off to them, and I I hear what you're saying. Like the nice set is like well, you weren't really watching us and you didn't do anything. So how nice really was it? Like, <laughs> like you know, I don't know. It's like, you know, it's, it's always been a weird, it's a weird thing to hear. And you're like, I don't really need to hear this. You know, like right. um, it's good that you brought up magnitude. Cause something I'd like to kind of get into with you is it's not an age thing. It's more like your time in is how I should put it. And your time in, you've watched the bands that would influence magnitude first start. And there's probably been a band in between them and Magnitude. And now you're at like a third wave of bands that sound like Magnitude. Okay. And I and I and I see this constantly reappearing. I said it to Juice, like there's all these young kids and they're, they're they just want graffiti logos and guns now. It's interesting that the cycle of hardcore uh ingredients or you know uh aesthetics cycle through. And uh I know you have had to have seen it more recently with the amount of uh, super nineties veganism stuff that these younger kids are latching onto. How surreal is it when you were there at the nineties with the, the, the veganism stuff and then with the graffiti stuff that a band like magnitude and younger bands like them are bringing all that back to the forefront of the culture. It's, it's crazy how it it's like very comes in cycles. And like, I remember maybe a, a couple years ago we played in Florida and someone at the show was wearing a contempt shirt, which is this yes. like vegan band from Rochester that I hadn't thought about in like 20 years, like great band. I've played with them. I've seen them several times, but a very, very niche unknown underground band. And I just saw this kid and I'm like, this kid in Florida has this contempt shirt. It's fucking mind blowing. But I mean, I think it's, you know, just as much as I love Gorilla Biscuits, 
you know, the people in magnitude probably love, I, I don't want to speak for them, but probably like day of suffering and stuff like that. So it it's only natural to me because I love all the old shit and so do they. So it's, it's, it's just crazy how it comes in cycles. And like, um, at one point, super beat down, tough guy, hard ass, stigmata, fury of five shit. And then the vegan stuff comes. And then, I mean, at some point, probably like Texas is the reason and ashes and stuff like that will come around and, and stuff like that. So it's, it's, it's kind of crazy, but it keeps you on your toes. And I mean, I love it all. I love everything from fucking blood for blood all the way down to sunny day real estate. So as long as it's good and you can see the people are doing it from the heart and they, they, uh, they mean it then I'm probably with it. I, I enjoy, this is going to sound crazy. 20 years ago, the internet had these like file sharing things that let all these young kids in on bands that I saw with cassette tapes in the mid nineties. So all these bands that might've played for 15 people started having hundreds of followers. Like this band's so sick. And I was, you know, I'm like, when you see them live, there was like only 20 of us at this fucking show. 20 years later, there's young kids who are now talking about, about bands anywhere between 20, 30, 40 years ago with the same drive and passion. It shows that the connectivity doesn't die at the live level. And I wonder if you've seen it with terror because you've released so many records where, you know, we spoke on it, there's ups and downs where records that maybe not have gotten the, the same level of excitement and acclaim because you play tracks from those records live and starting to get a second wind. I, it's weird because it's a good thing, but, um, whereas I would think everyone, every terror, I hate the word fan, but just for the sake of this talk, every terror fan, I would say they were going to go with lowest of the low, one with the underdogs or keepers of the faith is their favorite terror record. But I hear the damn, the shamed. I hear always the hard way a lot, like a lot. And to me, those are records that we don't play that much stuff off of, if any. And it's just, it's fucking hard because we have our, our songs that we play no matter what. And then we have songs that we rotate in and out and then we have a new record. So we play some new stuff, but it's just like, to be a band this long and have this many songs is really fucking hard to make a set list. That's going to cover all the bases for everybody. It's fucking impossible. It's literally impossible. One thing at this point, you have so many records where you're damned to have a record where, Oh, this is the 10th year of this record and five years, 15th year of this record. Right. You're like, <laughs> what the fuck? You're the 20th year of another record. You're like, how the fuck do we even do an anniversary tour? I don't I even feel- know how Agnostic Front makes a set list. That's got to be because they've got hundreds, way more. <laughs> hundreds. Like, of I don't even know how they do it. I feel like there's a special thing about terror in that. Why that happens is your name is ubiquitous. You're ubiquitous with terror. Terror is ubiquitous with hardcore in the modern day. So when someone finds hardcore, they find terror. Whatever the latest record is at the time where they show in the hardcore. Right. That's their that's their inoculation point. And that's probably why you're seeing people 
listen to the damn the shame like this was so fucking good because it goes all the way back to what we said the first record that you get with a band you you fucking you don't you don't fuck that record and ghost it you fucking make love to that thing you fucking listen to it <laughs> back and forth you learn every fucking lyric and that's your fucking baby bitch so because you don't know what else to listen to at the time um you have tracks like that survival comes crashing down that's still on every workout playlist that i have from when I had to burn a CD for a workout just because of the riffs. And that's the other thing that really is interesting is like the different touches that you've added to record to record have given different people the ability to interact with it. So I'm not surprised that you have people saying, oh, the, this record, like there's kids that will strap tell you Keepers of the Faith is one of the greatest hardcore records of all time. And I'd like to put them in the room with people from the Bridge Nine day back and they like, Anything that's not low is low shit. Right. <laughs> you know, like there's always right. gonna there's right. always gonna be this snobby opinion, but it's always the presentation live that sells terror. Like, you know, whether and you've had and you and I have had talks where I'm like, dude, sometimes it's just playing the small room after you feel like, oh, you know, people don't care, that immediately ignites you back to be like, yes, we're on fucking top of the world, you know? And it's those smaller bands you're talking about like with the dares and stuff that when you play with them and their fans interact with you potentially for the first time that kind of gives you a jump start where you're excited again yeah i think over the last five years especially we've really said we only want to play with bands that we like and we only want to play i don't want to say small rooms but there's no goal to play in these big rooms with these you know like there was a point where we were just you know trying to support so much and outside the the hardcore box and um you know trying to like get on these tours with like lamb of god and kill switch engage and and what i'm about to say next is not at all a shot at those bands but right now if we got off of those tours i i have no interest in doing those things well i think like, i think what you're saying is right though when you were doing that hardcore was really in a low spot and you were being driven by see like an, a completely not that the music industry and i hate the fucking word industry but it's getting more corporate and industry than ever the people that were making the decisions wanted to see numbers and oh, how many shows do you play in these rooms? So you were doing this because that's what people did and hardcore. You were already the terror of that hardcore world. So you had to go outside it to keep doing the tours. Now you're at a different phase. And I think that the kind of people that Lamb of God and kill switch and all them bands were playing for then. Now they're straight up like parking lot, lot lizards, Budweiser. <laughs> well, the, I, I dude, I'd watched it. I, I fucking was mind blown. I saw Slayer. Actually, I saw Behemoth, Lamb of God, and Slayer in the parking lot of the Electric Factory, which holds five thousand. It's like an outside concert. I saw Burn the Priest at the Stalag Thirteen, where you played with Buried Alive and Converge. You feel me? Like I see Lamb of God. I see Kill Switch Gates at the Kill Time right next door. These are straight up like long hair, Leonard Skinner dudes. Like, yeah, man, just want to get drunk, listen to Lamb of God. What the fuck are they going to get out of terror? <laughs> what are they going to get out of terror? Ugh. Besides yeah, a payday, I mean, besides a payday and touring with your friends, you wouldn't have that same value. And I think that when you said the thing about Europe, 
you're on this big stage, you're playing with Iron Maiden, you're not hanging out with Bruce, but you're playing with him. <laughs> you know, like we we can pretend. Yeah, you could pretend, but it's not what you're doing this still for. I think if you did those tours more, you wouldn't be sitting where you're sitting still talking about it being excited because you'd be disenfranchised either from doing the band at all or disconnected from the hardcore scene if you didn't constantly touch your toes back into the world. We're definitely much happier as people and as a band touring a little bit less and keeping it in the world we want to be in. And that's not to say that we'll never tour outside the box again, because if the right thing comes at the right time and we say, fuck it, let's do it. Let's do it. But uh, I mean, we've done some tours with like suicidal. That was great. I would do that again, but I'm just happier playing these small rooms and doing straight up hardcore shit. Well, I think also the box changes. And I think that you have, I think you've managed to be flexible enough and the versatility of being able to play with a suicidal makes total sense. Now, if you went on tour to obituary, it'd be a little bit weird. Them dudes are like vest Lords that kind of stand around and they wouldn't get terror as much, you know? Right. One, one thing I'd like to ask you about, since we were talking about the way that young kids interact with older stuff, what do you think you miss the most from the days leading up to buried alive that you don't see as much in hardcore, or do you find that there's not really much to wax nostalgically about from that time? Hmm. Give me a second on this one. There's gotta be something. I mean, I don't know if this is going to answer your question correctly because it's not really hardcore scene, but just me personally it was just so carefree like before that like there was no pressure there was no numbers there was no uh agents there was no backstage there was no guest list none of that stuff really existed it was just all about playing show of course you it was you know it was semi-competitive you wanted to have a great show and you wanted people to like your band, but it was, I guess you said before you hated the word industry. It was so un industry. There was just, it was just kids renting a hall or finding some shitty bar that would do the show. And, you know, like there was no sell like sold out shows. Sure. Some shows were totally packed, but the term sold out never really mattered. You would never see people saying, oh, we, we we sold out the VFW hall. That just people didn't talk like that because that shit didn't matter. And and I think uh yeah, it was just way more carefree and way less about numbers and, and just about having fun. I'm glad that you talked about numbers because I was getting towards that with the previous question. But the part of the industry that has permeated into hardcore and kind of taken some root. It's almost like a disinformation campaign where they're constantly slamming young bands with numbers and they're social media based and attendance based. And I don't think that it keeps people grounded in the things that you love and preserve because they're so wound up in metrics. You know, in the purest form, like, oh, well, we sold this amount of merch. And as we said, and when a young band starts telling me stuff, I go, yeah, I don't give a fuck. I literally don't give a fuck about that. Like, if, 
I really like I, I I say that once a week to someone when they start like bragging, like, how is the crowd? You know, like the what is it what is like you know, like there's so many bad numbers, and I feel like the people who want to be puppet uh masters pull these strings with numbers for like a song and a dance and trick people into thinking that those things are what really count. That I I, could, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I've seen I mean, this is like when I get in my negative headspace and I see bands on Instagram, another sold out show, sold out show, sold out show. And I'm like, why don't you talk about a local band you saw that said something on stage that made you think about something important? Like, great. You sold out a show. Did you say that the cap was 150? Like, did you, you know, like there's a million things that go into it, but just saying you sold a show out that that's the biggest point of the night you could say that a a million things that were cool like you know just a million things but when your head wraps around that the big deal was that the show was you sold tickets like who gives a fuck Uh, that's like i'll I'll give you i'll give you a funny one because you played voltage you played voltage at the show that I have sold more tickets at than I think at any show. And when we sell more tickets, we pay the bands more money because it's old school. Uh, you know, at some point we go, Oh fuck, we really can't fit nobody else in here. All right, wrap it up B. But as a promoter who works with in a room, there were multiple people promote. You'd see, I would see the same thing and have a reaction. Another sold out show at voltage. And I would click a link and watch a video and half the room is like a big circle. And then I would look at like a terror show and I would look at like the judge show and I'd be like, this is a sold out show. <laughs> you know, like we got it packed. I always hated the modern day internet posturing when it's like, you could fit more people. I hate turning people away. I had a kid who came from China on the Thursday of the youth is Today reunion. And the club was like, uh, we need your help. And I came out and I'm like, what's the matter? He's like, this kid has a Sunday ticket. Wants to see the show. And I'm like, he came from China. He doesn't speak English. <laughs> How did it get here? Oh, he came to see the first time you said they play with the original lineup. We're letting him in. Right. You know, like I also used to say like, oh, the show sold out. That just means we can't charge any more money. I'm not going to turn my friend away from watching the band. You know, like there, there seems to be a drive towards metrics that, as we said, pushes people away. And yet it all it does is desensitize the people for the things that matter the most. And I love that you're still connected with the people and the bands you're connected with the bands coming up. And um, I think that's what keeps you going because I've seen all the different iterations where big business involved in hardcore bands has changed their perspective. I've seen hardcore bands change who they are and sound for different numbers. And here you are, you're still standing in front of me or now you're sitting in front of me talking we're talking like the first time we hung out and that's because you have to stay grounded. Um, when I think of terror and I think of you, I mean, I watched you play as despair. I've watched you play as buried alive and you're always at your most feral with the mic in your hand. But then when you talk outside, maybe a couple of times you're drunk, you're a little bit louder, but then you immediately go into a more, um, like chilled pause state, you know, depending on who you're around. And I wonder if 
you're able to be more chill and relaxed because you release so much out of you when you're up on them stage for whether it's 20 minutes or 40 minutes or whatever. I think so. And I think, uh, I, you know, I'm not like Mr. Shy, but I'm also not Mr. I need all the attention in the world. So when you're on stage, that's your time to go. That's your time to say what you want to say, what's important to you and put on a show. And then after I don't need the spotlight on me. I don't need to be the center of attention. Of course, you know, I like to have some fun and, and socialize, but I can't be on 10 all the time. That would be fucking weird. And I do know some people like that. And it's fucking weird to me. Now you're like a sit in a corner with three of your friends and have a good conversation. I've never seen you standing in a ring of people holding court. And I've seen you be bashful when they, like we're all hanging out and it's like, oh, this is getting too crazy. I got to duck into this other thing. You know, like Luke from Wisdom's more of like the fucking. Oh, the, my God. That's the he's more amazing. He's more like the he can hold everyone's attention. And he thrives in it. And I find that to be so interesting about you because on stage, you are definitely a commander on the stage. Uh, you say amazing things about people. You put everybody at the highest pedestal when you're up there and you can be pretty quiet. I won't say quiet, but I can say you're reserved, you know, like it's like, all right, you shot your load. <laughs> I did my thing. I'm now able just to hang out and be me. I agree. And someone like Luke, he's so amazing at holding court. It's, it's like a, it's like a joy to watch. He's, he, he's like on 10 all the time. And I said, sometimes that's weird. Not for him. He he's like built for that. Yeah. He has a personality and an energy that just is boom, 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 boom. <laughs> what do you think if you had, is there anybody that you haven't toured with that you can really think of that you wish you would have done a tour with considering how many bands you've been you in? You want to hear this? Yeah. We'd love yeah, to hear I, who you haven't toured with. Agnostic front. Never. Never with terror. Never ever with anyone. MAD never hooked it up. You know, I don't know. Uh, we canceled a tour with on them way back in the day in death before dishonor uh, took our place. So I hope to God that isn't the reason why. I mean, I, I have a good relationship with all of them. And I mean, I've said it to Roger's face. I've said it on other podcasts. I've said it in interviews, but we need to tour with agnostic front at some point. I mean, after COVID, I think anybody who is pining for something crazy, you're going to see these matchups happening just because people are going to start seeing that we don't have everything guaranteed in front of us. You also, I believe you toured with Isaac before, didn't you? Didn't Barry Live do like Scarhead tours? Yeah. Uh, VOD, Scarhead, Candiria, Buried Alive. Yeah. That was a good one. <laughs> I think he just posted a picture from that tour. And I actually was thinking about our conversation. And that was like an insane time. Once again, for hardcore, here's VOD coming up. Scarhead somehow is a, is a thing that people are like fucking super they, excited about. And then you have Candiria on that tour. Well, that was their moment. That was like, people loved them. That was like, you had, you you end up being like the, uh, like a perfect four band package. How many times do you think has that happened to you? Where at the right time in the right situation, 
you end up just on this tour where the energy is great? Uh, very often, sometimes not, but very often. I mean, that knock loose tour we did with Jesus piece, uh, you're the knife too. Was that the, first absolutely. They were the openers. Piece? Yeah. They were Dude, the openers. That was incredible. Um, I mean, I could just go down a list so, so many times. And I mean like the VOD thing, that was a Tim Bohr thing who I haven't listened to his episode yet, but on your, uh, podcast, but I, I can't wait to listen to that. Um, you know, sometimes it's just like, I think that tour we did uh, right before COVID was really good. It was us, Kubla Khan, if I'm pronouncing that right. Yes. Magnitude and Restraining Order. And that was a fucking great package. That was a perfect I think, balance. I think that was a Vitalo call. And that was really great. The one we did with um, the, the one at Voltage you're talking about with Harm's Way, Backtrack. Candy and who the fuck was you're the knife? Yep. Damn, that's that. And we put and we put Hangman as an opener, so that Philly show was even fucking crazier. Um, we've had some like magical tours with fucking stick your guns. Um, that thing we did with fucking hate breed, obituary, chromags, terror, and fit for an autopsy. That's fucking insane. That's a crazy bill. Yeah, that that was the tour uh, last time we all hung out at the Electric yeah, Factory. That was the first show at the Electric Factory. I think when I look at the shows at work, I feel like the and, that, and I'd like you to correct me if I'm mistaken. When the energy is right for the bands, the shit that I don't like about the industry gets the fuck out of the way, and they make it happen. And I feel like sometimes the energy could be there, but there's always some industry thing or some numbers bullshit or some competitive jockeying that kills some of the best potential lineups. And it always hurts the fans the most because they don't see it and then they don't get to support the bands the right way. And so like what you said about Knock Loose and Terror, that is uh, reveled, keep saying the word wrong, that is reveled by young kids. And I was like, that was one of the craziest shows. It was on Easter. And it was such a good show. We repeated it the following year with the Year of the Nice Record Release Party. Because I was blown away people would come out on Easter Sunday. And um, I wonder how many times the industry end of things has just like had to muck it up and ruin potentially something that could have been an amazing, awesome thing for everybody. I think... Uh you only have the bands to blame if that's what happens because the industry can only do so much. And if the bands get to get together and talk amongst each other, they can do whatever the fuck they want. The industry really can't, you know, on paper they can stop the bands, but they can't really stop the bands. You know, if, if you're having some weird situation going down, if the bands come together and talk and and have the right attitude and, and go out there and say, a, B, and C are in front of us, but fuck it. Let's let's do our thing and make this as cool as fucking possible. It's it will be as cool as possible. I I have always tried to be someone who can work within the construct and structure of what a band needs. Like I hate going to my friend who's in a band and talking to them about a show. I might say, Hey, are you guys into this? For the exact reason that you just said. And I and I always caution young promoters. 
Don't go to the band and talk about money with them. Talk to them if they even want to do it. Because if the band wants to do it and it ends up being cool, they'll make it happen. But where young promoters and promoters fuck up in general is, money makes for bad relationships because the band wants to say yes to it and they don't want to be involved with how it takes money-wise. And that's where a promoter has to think more. That's what I'm saying on this podcast because I get a lot of young promoters ask questions. If the band's into your show, they're going to want to do it if the, if the timing and the money is right. Once the band's into it, go to the agent and never say, well, I talked to the band. They want to do it. But mention, hey, listen, I was bringing that up to them. I don't think they'd be against this. Right. And I wonder how weird it must be for you to go from getting handwritten letters by someone like me to having people call you on the phone and say, well, here's your options for next year is what you want to tour. <laughs> I, I guess I'm, you know, I'm not going to lie. I, I think about things and hope we make money and I'm, I'm not immune to saying oh, terror had a sold out show. We're fucking great. You know, like I, I'm, uh, you know, not Mr. Self-righteous a hundred percent of the time, but I just don't, it, it's kind of like you said, if there's something we want to do, we figure out a way to do it. And like, you know, there's times we've lost money, but there's there's still times that we'll play a show and we'll have a a guarantee of fifteen hundred dollars in a smaller city just done by a hardcore kid. And I'll notice there's not enough people there, and I'll go right up to him and say, "Did you lose money tonight?" And he'll be like, "Yeah, don't, but don't worry about it." Like, how much? And he'll be like, uh, "I lost four hundred dollars," and I'll give him the four hundred dollars back. Like. This isn't all about numbers and uh, profit and stuff like that. If, you know, if it's some big live nation show, I would never, I don't care then. But if some hardcore kid promotes the show and loses money, there's no reason why we need to make $1,500. We can, you know, make it so everyone breaks even and, and, and things are left in a good place. So I don't, you know, of course I care and I, I do get caught up in some things, but I'm, I try to not let myself get in that position where I'm talking about stuff like that too much. No, I feel like the drive should always be to make good shows happen and the ball roll forward. I, I, I have a lot of worry and fear, or I won't say fear, a lot of worry and potential concern with the constant involvement of corporations that the feel of a hardcore show is only going to get further lost because so many smaller venues may have to close that we're going to have to take it all the way back to the halls and the small rooms. And I hope, and I know I don't have to worry about it with terror, but there's so many bands I have to think about, like, will they make the move and understand, Hey man, look, the small rooms are going to lose their licenses. They're not gonna be able to open. I don't want to see shows at live nation hell venues all the time. I don't like, I hate W not as a promoter. I hate W nining bands. I hate the entire tax thing that keeps bands from being able to do stuff. And I feel like the more a band can connect with the people booking the shows, the more everybody's circle of trust is built. And it, you're just helping this promoter out. If Terror does a show for a young promoter. Who's on the way up. That show could be the beginning of something great for them. Cause now they have 
like, hey, I did a terror show and it went well. That's it happened to me. I was 17 years old. I was doing some mostly local bands, maybe some bands from out of state. I did 125 to life show. It went well. And then all the people who I wrote letters do sort of actually be like, hey, I heard, you you know, hey, can we come down there and play? So sometimes you guys could be like the Johnny Appleseed and work with that small promoter and give them that first show that they need to take it up a level. So I think it's great that you're still cognizant of the importance of the small promoter. I, yeah, I mean, that's, that's important to everybody and that's, that's important to their scene. And that's, I mean, that's the foundation. And I think it's great too, with, with someone like you or like, uh, you know, there's people around the country that book shows and get into a more professional position, but keep their head where, where they came from. And then a band like us. And it's like a, it's like a perfect scenario. I have lost money three times on bands where someone who I worked with, with their hardcore bands, like, dude, you're going to kill it. I promise. <laughs> and I lose money and I go, I'm so fucking stupid. I'm never doing this again. I don't care how good it is. And I made a decision post European Shattered Realm touring that I will make more money and a more sanity in my brain being away from all the stuff that comes after a show is over, like getting to a show. Fuck. I hate being the guy who loads everything in. And then I was on tour selling merch for shadow realm. Cause I'm fucking dumb and didn't want to hang out and party all night. Cause I don't, I don't drink or anything like that. And I realized just getting up and go to work and pouring concrete would allow me to book shows, have personal finances covered by working concrete and the show to be fun. I, I you know, there's times when terror has come through Philly Hey, I'm not Live Nation. I understand you got you got to play the big show, you know. And I and I've managed to learn to not be upset when someone can't play for me, because, dude, not this year, 2021, 2022, I will have been booking hardcore shows for 25 years, man. You know, and that's because I stopped touring and I could just pour concrete. Now I do this podcast. I got my fest. You know, like I had to make a choice. And I love it. And I and I hate when my friends and bands lose sight of the important things. I love that you just said how much you're still tied into this because without people at your level paying attention to the promoter, paying attention to the local bands, the disconnection's real. And there's plenty of bands that we're not gonna name that are completely disconnected, but still wave some hardcore flags around and you're like, dude, you haven't been connected in so long, you don't even you don't even get it, you know? And I think that's one of the major longevity points or points of why you have such longevity is that you've never disconnected. I, if I'm correct, the first time you booked one of my bands was buried alive in November 98 with clubber Lang. All at war. Uh, Was it all at war too? They didn't show up that night because we had to move the venue, but so it was you guys and clubber Lang and Kensington and freight train. Nice. What? 98. Yeah. I was 18. Because you wrote me and you're like, hey, you wrote me during Despair. Would you be into doing my new band, Buried Alive? And you sent me a two-song demo. And I'm like, holy fuck. <laughs> it's fucking great. That's great. And well, like, I, th- I think I might have stayed. At- I know I stayed at your house one time. We I had. Well, the thing is, is like, I, like, think about that. Like, people look at Buried Alive flyers. 
And I tell the young kids who like the kind of kids are into contempt and like the smaller bands that we would know, like everything was smaller than what you see on the internet in the presentation. Like that, I wish that show did 200 people. It did more like 85, but all 85 of them people, yo, actually you had Andy from every time I die as your roadie and he had his leg in like a weird cast or something. Yeah. It was like a weird, like double cast or something. And that December, he was like, yo, come out and check my band. Every time I die, we're playing a kill time. First time I saw every time I die, they opened for all else failed, you know, like, and now you look at them and it's like, that's like a band that I'd like to one day get as a headliner for the fest one day. And they're like, we don't want a headline, but we'll just come play one day. So like, it's, it's interesting how you interact and meet with these people. But what I was getting at is better live play with converge in the summer of 99 two days before I did my first U.S. tour. I even asked him, like, dude, what's the tour going to be like? You're like, you're going to find out, man. <laughs> you know, and I was like <laughs> freshly 19 years old. But you guys played that show. Now that show would have been fucking huge, but it's Stalag 13. We're fucking outside in the, in the that's actually a show people still talk about because everybody went outside after Buried Alive and was in the fire plug and fucking getting soaked because it was so hot out. But you cut your teeth on so many shows that were awesome, but the financial value wasn't there. Like, you know, there wasn't some giant guarantees and I'm not surprised that 20 years or 20 you know, for this, 21 years later, finances make sure terror still has wheels under you, but it's not the motivation. Yeah. I mean, I can't, t- I, I would say the average buried alive turnout for the whole band. And this is averaging in big shows like VOD is probably like a hundred people, maybe. You know, we played so many shows with like All Out War, Reach the Sky, where there's 75 people. And I don't, I mean, I might be wrong because, you know, there was a point in Buried Alive where Pike and or Tim Bohr were booking us. So at those shows, we were probably getting like two, 250 maybe $500 on a really good night. But it was, you know, that was just all hopefully break even, hopefully break even. Um you know, but at the time I lived in Buffalo with four other members of the band and our rent was like probably $800. So my rent was probably like $200 a month. So I was also telemarketing at the time, like 20 hours a week. So yeah, that's just back to like carefree bill. I didn't have many bills. The band, it was just about can we pay for gas and stay in someone's house? Like I just brought up to you, like, yeah, it was just like a different time. And, uh, you know, of course now I'm 47 and have a decent amount of bills. So I got to be a little more, uh, have my mind a little bit more on money, but it's still not the, the terror, uh, requirements are not, are we going to make a bunch of money? What are we getting paid? why who why are we playing before this band uh you know stuff like that we've just never really fallen into that headspace where it's all about the things that aren't important they still aren't really that fucking important no i I couldn't agree more i find as someone who tries to build bands the hardest thing is something you brought up there's always like this quiet like who are we playing with who we playing before you know, like, especially with younger bands more than anything, like they want to be seen in a presence. And I've had agents go, they don't need the money. Can you just make them a little bit higher up on the bill? And I'm always like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, it, it's interesting that the aesthetics that don't matter as much as 
hey, you know, curating a great lineup. One of the things that uh, was brought to my attention when I was talking about this episode specifically, you have been able to come down to Philadelphia and help This Is Hardcore. And I don't know if you realize it, but because we brought up Tim Board a couple times now, and I'll tell the story. I asked you to play This Is Hardcore the very first year. And you're like, yeah, yeah, we'll do it. And the way it worked out is you were going to fly to Boston, play at the Romans in uh, Brockton, Mass., and then come down and play Philly on the Saturday. And what I didn't know was that Sounds of the Underground happening would make Tim Moore pissed off. And I remember I posted the flyer and I had a flyer and Tim's like, you booked Terror? They're playing in Philly. How'd they do it? I'm like, they're playing my fest too, man. And he's like, well, I'm going to have a talk with them. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, and, I, and he was like saying like, he's got to penalize you guys money because of radiance clause. And even then I still, as I'm doing my first fest, I didn't realize the professional side of some things, you know, and that like you guys basically took a hit on a big show to play to help us out. And I really appreciate that you guys were like, Oh, it's Joe. He's got a fast. Yeah. We'll play the first year. Fuck it. Later on, you did a show for me at the Barbary, which remains my favorite Barbary show of all times. And I grew up booking shows with not having a four band package. So I did a show and I'll post a flyer. It was terror, hundred demons, Maximum penalty mindset. Hell yes. And that was one of my favorite all-time Barbary shows. Like, and it was another thing where it's like, yo, you guys want to do this? And I might, you guys might actually been coming through. And it might have been like a me saying to like whoever was booking at the time, like, hey, you mind if I put blah 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 together? Like, yeah, do whatever you want. We just need a day. But I love that you I've always been able to put terror on some wild shit in Philadelphia, and it's always made the show something special. Uh, you played my 30th birthday party. Uh, unfortunately, COVID ruined my 40th birthday party. Uh, <laughs> hopefully, uh, I just really appreciate as a promoter the added value of having terror on a bill. It's kind of like you want terror on your show because then people want to play it. And I think what you said about the bands wanting to do it, me telling Pete, yo, do you want to come down and play Philly with terror and maximum penalty? And he'd be like, yeah, fuck yeah, we want to do, you know, like, and mindset was like right before they were about to get like really exposed to the world. So they were just like to play all this. And I just remember just like your band, because you guys are that band, you can actually play with every one of these bands. And I wonder if you even realize the versatility of what your band is after all these different shows you played. Not really. Uh, I, hmm. I guess when you bring it up, it puts a smile on my face that hundred demons, you know, obviously a real tough band and then a youth crew band would both want to play with play on our show or play all together. But I mean, I, I grew up from the era era when despair would play with the get up kids or fucking split lip or, you know, coalesce or like to me that the, the boundaries go even farther you know like buried alive toured with hot water music that was fucking amazing and that's really stretching it so but uh yeah i mean i i appreciate the kind words and we always you know we always know when we're doing a show with you it's gonna be done to the best of its fucking possibilities 
and you know i i don't think we always expect the world but uh just thinking about the last couple times we've been in philly it's been fucking amazing so now we, we're going to do you guys appreciation comes right back to you we were going to do you as a church this year and I really hope that we have a chance to do the church because I think the terror needs to have a church at this generation level. One of the last things I'm going to get into before we go because we've been talking almost three hours. Holy so, shit. Yeah, I mean, this shit flies by when you're having a good time. <laughs> One of the things that you touched on, which I was going to get to, is you've managed through despair, buried alive, and terror to see something that a lot of people don't value is that hardcore, to me, comes from a band that's willing to play with another band and the people that can manage to kind of like, I'll use the term converge because that's what the word really means. We all converge at this point and we enjoy this music together. So like a kid dynamite playing a show with grade buried alive. Uh, you said split lip. We can add all else failed. There was a ton of different bisecting points that all center in at hardcore. And they all have their own different arm or leg or whatever you want to call it. Like this is this branch of this tree. But the intrinsic value is that the culture that it comes from has a real tight, you know, connection that goes all the way back now 40 years. And um, I think that it takes someone like you to see the importance of playing with all them kind of bands because you've actually seen it in the time frame. Like it's one thing now I bet you could play a fest with half of those bands you mentioned and it wouldn't seem weird, but you played hall shows with those bands and then you've watched, I mean, you you've done tours with Scarhead, you've done tours with VOD, you've done tours with behemoth and kill switch gauge and suicidal tendencies. How much do you appreciate hardcore knowing that all these different things all lead back to the same source? I, I think it's like uh, my goal in life sometime is to get Dan Yeeman and Freddie Mabal together because these are two people that I know decently well. And I think they are very similar to each other, but completely opposite at the same time. So, and I know all three of us like whiskey. So I would love to just get those two together and, and see those two connect and get to know each other. And this all stems from um, one time I had a conversation with Dan Yeeman, and he definitely didn't say something negative about Madball or Freddie at all, but he said something to me that made me think, man, it, if you knew him, I think you guys would like love each other and get along really well. So I always had this goal in the back of my mind to get those two together and like hang out with them. And I feel like that if Freddie saw Lifetime play, I think he would love them. And I think if Dan has probably seen Madball play, but maybe after meeting Freddie would have like maybe even more of an appreciation for the band. And just like that, thinking about what you just asked me, it just is kind of crazy. Like all these different, there's like hardcore has so many different subsets now and different branches of the tree, like you said, but I think at the, the root of it all, we're all pretty much just like these crazy lost kids that 
like extra loud, extra fast music. And I just think it's, you know, I, like I said, I can enjoy like, uh, you like youth crew. I listen to so much youth crew, but at the same time I can listen to the hardest, like cold as life and get the same feeling from both of them. And it's just like something like you really can't like, I've been asked before, like define hardcore. And it's like, there's like really no words to define it. It's just that feeling and energy. And if you're like that type of person that gets that vibe, when you hang out with the person, I think you're going to connect on life in so many different ways. And I don't, you know, there's definitely things that I disagree with, with tons of hardcore kids about life. But I think you have got a lot better chance of connecting and, 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 having respect for someone that comes from this. No, I, I completely agree. Um, the one time that I know that they played the same show, I booked them together. Who lifetime and Mabel? No, I did Madball, hundred demons and paint it black. Okay. One, this is hardcore Friday night of 2018. I mean, I think I might actually even go and have heart paint it black, hundred demons, Madball. That's a, that's a good show. Uh, and it, it to me like what you're saying and i've tried to do it this hardcore as much as possible is give the presentation of a person who can go to a show and see all the different values of hardcore for what it is instead of trying to john like micro genre and say oh well this doesn't fit because of this it's like no nah, fuck you it all fits you know what i mean right. like the first night of the fest in 2012 the first big venue show we did suicidal tendencies and hundred demons and Cro-Mags. The following yes. night we did the following night we did Girl Biscuits Lifetime and Title Fight. The the Sunday we did Blacklisted Floor Punch Tenured Fight. There's value. Sounds, sounds amazing. There's value in all these things. And uh I'm gonna air this episode on Christmas. So I want nice. you I want you to lead us out with uh I want you to recommend me one podcast guest that you think I should do and why and leave us with something impactful for Christmas night. Okay. The one podcast guest you should get is Jim winners. Oh my God. I think, I think, uh, conviction and turmoil and the promise are all amazing bands. I've never heard him on a podcast and he's a very interesting person as you know. Um, and give us, you want me to give some, uh, a Christmas joyous speech? I would like you to impart any kind of Christmas wisdom or something that people should look forward to anything that you think you would think someone will want to enjoy right. on Christmas night. Mm. If that's too hard, I tell me your favorite Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me your favorite Christmas memory. My favorite Christmas memory. Hmm. I've been so vocal and now I'm speechless. For me, I'm looking, well, I'll tell you, my Christmas, this is my first time back in Buffalo in many, many years. 
actually last year we played that every time I die Christmas show. So I was back in Buffalo for Christmas, but this year, very strange year we've all been through. So my mom is making lasagna and I'm going to do a drive by pickup of some lasagna, a home cooked meal from my mom. And I will be enjoying it in my new apartment in Buffalo with Philadelphia's own Miss Barco. And uh, there's snow on the ground. I can see my uh, the guy below me who owns the house. He is snow blowing the driveway right now because it snowed pretty hard today and yesterday. So I'm going to make this year my fa- best Christmas memory and look forward to a 2021 with a good mental state and a nice break from life. And we'll hopefully get back to some of the things we all love and enjoy. Thank you for that. And thank you for the last three hours. I wanted someone special that I had a lot to uh, discuss with. I'm glad that we broke from our usual programming and took this down different paths. It was so much more intriguing and I really enjoyed the flow of the conversation. If you don't know how to find terror, terror, hardcore, everywhere, all over the damn world. I can only imagine what 2021 is going to do for all of us. And I can't wait to reconnect with you guys. Thank you for being on the podcast. Merry Christmas to you and Barco. And I can't wait to hang out for the first time. Post all this nonsense. Thank you for having me, Joe. And we will hang out as soon as fucking possible. And happy holidays to you and everyone out there listening in podcast land. That was a lot of fun to record. And I really hope that you guys got a kick out of all the different things that we talked about. Next week's guest is Aram from Champion, React Records. More importantly now, he's also in change, and he is the CEO of Cadence Leadership. It's kind of crazy to think that we have people that we grew up in hardcore with that are now CEOs, but that's one of the major reasons why I got to have him on the podcast. There's so many things that he taught us in this one, and I'm really excited for you to check it out. It'll be airing again Friday, January 1st, the first of our podcast in 2021. Also, 2021 begins us trying out Patreon. If it works, it works. If it don't, it don't. I do all the recording. I do all the editing. I do all the promo. So I'll keep doing it the same way, and it won't matter whether Patreon becomes something that people want to do or not. Though I do appreciate people reaching out and asking if I have one or if I'm going to start one. I guess it comes with the territory of having a podcast. So we're going to play the game. We're going to make it happen. The best thing I tell everybody to do is support the podcast by sharing the post when we post them. That allows other people to check it out. For some reason, when I post on Instagram, I could post a picture of the stupid sky from my job site. I'll get a thousand people looking at it. If I post about the podcast, the algorithm dips on both our pages immediately. So the support from social media by people just sharing is huge because more people listen. Obviously, if you listen and enjoy, you can go to iTunes and rate us and put comments, follow, share, tell people about us is the biggest way to help the podcast. And obviously, as I've told you all every single episode, I reply to comments, I reply to messages. One of the most rewarding experiences about doing this podcast has been hearing how people fill their day at work listening to the podcast, something that has drawn me to listen to podcasts on my own job. So I love that I'm giving that experience to other people. Shout out to Luke, who's overseas, serving our country. This stuff is big for people like Luke because he has hours to kill and he needs to get his mind off of what's going on out there. 
So big shout out. Hope to see you when you're back out here. Again, check us out. Tell people about us. But more importantly, over the next week or so, make sure you're aware of the people around you, how they feel, especially if they matter. Tell the people that you may not always talk to that you care about them. It's the small things, that text, maybe just a real quick DM. It's hard to feel alone. And this time of year, a lot of people are going through some bad times. So any kind of love and just general goodness you can spread to the world makes everyone a better place. Thank you. Have a good holiday. And you'll hear from me in 2021.